Yes, this fic has been rated R. It's not quite evil enough to deserve an NC-17 rating. It's the Diet Coke of evil. For March 16th, 2007, this is episode 5 of Potterfic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. Hey Ron, the next time you're Back to Potter Fig Weekly. I am Ryan. I'm Jen. That was Jen just there. Her accent still amuses me greatly. <laughs> Jen and I were actually just talking before the podcast. I felt like asking her to just read me the phone book. I just love listening to Jen speak. <laughs> it's a New England kind of thing. Rena and Kim have the night off tonight. They couldn't make it for the recording, but they will be here for episode six. We're going to start this evening with some feedback we received today uh, from Xenia, which I am mispronouncing. It is actually Chenya. Is that what you were getting, Jen? Is it Chenya? Like a C-H? Yeah, is it a C-H? I think it's Chenya. Well, you know what? She's about really? To say, she's about to say it in a second, so everyone listen very closely to uh, Headmistress Chenya of the Sugar Quill as she responds to episode four. <laughs> this cl- That's what she goes by. I'm not making this up. Okay, this clip goes about six and a half minutes, so we'll be back in a bit. Hello, everyone at Potterfic Weekly. This is Chenya, and I wanted to call in to comment on some of your comments about After the End in your most recent episode, which was episode four. The first thing I wanted to bring up was the original characters that we created, and I'm really glad that you guys like them. I'm glad that you like Rose K. Brown, and I'm glad that you like Mick. Rose K. Brown is a very thinly disguised version of a friend of mine and Arabella's, and I won't say her name because she is somewhere out there in the Harry Potter fandom. She's not quite as type A as Rose K. Brown is in the story, but they do share a lot of similarities. Mick isn't really based on anyone specific that either of us knew, at least I don't think, unless there's someone that Arabella was thinking of. Um, He's sort of the guy that I think went to most people's high schools, you know, that was a little bit geeky, but kind of funny. And uh, he just sort of ended up coming into his own after he left school. I think Rinna brought up um, Ginny and Hermione and the whole BFF thing, which um, I think I used when I was in middle school, probably. Oh my God, like for sure. And, uh, you know, I do think actually that there is a lot of evidence in canon that Hermione and Ginny are friends. I think all the the points that you brought up in your podcast about um, why they might get, not get along are valid. And actually, um, they that comes out in canon in uh, Half-Blood Prince when Hermione kind of snaps – or I'm sorry, Ginny kind of snaps at Hermione uh, about some things um, when she's trying to defend Harry, when Ginny's trying to defend Harry. Um, she says something like, oh, don't pretend like you know all about Quidditch now or something like that. But I think there's a lot of evidence that Hermione and Ginny are close friends. I mean, Hermione confides to Ginny about her date to the Yule Ball. Ginny seems to know all about it. And I think Arabella and I always sort of assumed that when Ginny and Hermione were sharing a tent at the um, Quidditch World Cup and Goblet of Fire, that that's maybe where they started to bond a little bit more and become really good friends. 
So I do think there was a lot of canon evidence, even, you know, in up to Goblet of Fire, that Ginny and Hermione had the potential to have a good friendship. And I think we just assumed that that would continue as they were sort of thrown together fighting this war. I was laughing pretty hard when you guys were talking about the uh, death of Dumbledore and, and how it was. And I guess... You know, it's kind of one of those things I, I'm sort of feeling as I listen to this podcast that after the end, it's just one big, you know, super drama after the other. And I just recently started watching Lost on DVD. I don't know how many people know that or watch that show. Um, but someone let me season one and I've been watching it. And it's it's kind of getting on my nerves a little bit because it's it's really gripping and it's really interesting. And I think the characters are great. But it's kind of like every episode, something like dramatic and terrible happens. And I just sort of roll my eyes and I'm like, oh, God, you know, now someone's having an asthma attack, whatever, you know. And I'm starting to feel like maybe after the end is a lot like that. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a function of it being a serialized story and the fact that we wrote it over such a long period of time, you know. I don't know, because I remember that Dumbledore scene we actually wrote fairly early on. That was one of our earlier snippets trying to figure out how Dumbledore died. And, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I think that a lake, a gap in the lake is any more um, hokey than the vanishing cabinet that was used in Half-Blood Prince, to be perfectly honest. I mean, but actually, to, also, to be honest, I haven't gone back and read the chapter because I'm a little scared after I heard you guys discussing it. Um you know, and I didn't even remember that sort of everything disappeared, like that the Dementors were banished away uh, after Dumbledore fell. But I think they might have been banished to the island that everybody's on and lost. And they might be the monster that everybody's afraid of. So I think we predicted that. Um, and I think we should get some credit for the development of the Lost TV show and um, the success of that. So, you know, just keep that in mind. And I'm joking, of course. I usually listen to your podcasts in my car, so I have these really badly scribbled notes that I'm not sure what they mean most of the time. And I have here on my paper uh, Percy and Gobstones, and I'm not sure what you guys said in the podcast that made me write that down. I, you know, I think it probably was discussion of Percy dying and um, that kind of thing. And I just, you know, wanted to point out once again that. The character of Percy, yes, it was easy to kill him off and so on and so forth. But one of the things that stuck out in my head and Arabella's head was, I think it's I think it's Chamber of Secrets, but I could be wrong. Um, one of the books, um, Percy leaves behind a set of gobstones uh, that Ron and Harry play with over the winter break. And um, I remember us think, you know, saying like, you know, Percy may be, you know, haughty and he may be proud and he may be ambitious and he may have a lot of flaws but you know he has a set of gobstones and I don't know someone who you know has a game and wants to play it can't be you know can't be too hard enough to crack so that's I can't remember why I wrote that down or how what happened with Percy there but um, you know just remember that he did have a set of gobstones there was also a lot of discussion about Sirius, and I was really glad to hear someone bring up, you know, that Sirius in fanfic. There's a lot of Sirius fangirls out there who sort of portray him as this this hot dude who, um, you know, is sexy and gets all the women and that kind of thing. And he very well might have been like that. I mean, he had a motorcycle. He was pretty cool. Um, but J.K. Rowling said in the chat, I'm pretty sure that Sirius was a case of arrested development. And I'm not sure when she said that, but that's certainly how I have always seen him. And that's how we tried to portray him in this story. You know, he, you, you guys had, I mean, basically I agree with it, everything you guys said. Um, 
you know, he, he was put in prison when he was young, like 23, 24. And um, in a lot of ways, he when he came back into the real world after leaving Azkaban, he sort of picked up right from there. And there's this big gap uh, that he didn't have a chance to develop. And I think that's all I really have to say. I was trying to figure out a way to to fit bite me into this message somehow, but it never seemed, it really seemed to work anywhere. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll just say goodbye instead. I would have killed if she had just ended that voicemail, bite me, Zenyu. <laughs> I was sitting here, like, every time I get an email from her, I just drop what I'm doing and go listen to it. That would have just... <laughs> I actually wrote back to her with a, with a few comments I had, and I actually signed the email, BFF Ryan. When she was talking about Dumbledore and that she was so embarrassed to say anything, and I was like, oh, no. I mean, that wasn't my intention at all last week. You know, to make her embarrassed, it was just a very amusing, and you know. Yeah, and that's the thing too. And I, th- and I think she she gets that we we love the story, and sometimes we we find a few things quirky. Uh, and it was actually yes. funny. I tend to think very lawyerly. I work with a lot of lawyers, and I usually tend to always preface everything I say with qualifications. So I actually had expected the vanishing cabinet argument. Uh, before we even had the podcast. So that was in my mind as I was uh, talking about the um, the hole in the lake. Here's the difference there. Mm-hmm. I don't recall at all in the canon, and if this actually happened, I'll completely withdraw my, uh, my minor complaint here. I don't recall the hole in the lake ever being mentioned in the canon. I just, I just didn't think that was directly stated. I didn't remember conversations anyone had about the hole in the lake. It just seemed like one of those made-up things used to get the Dementors and Voldemort to Hogwarts, whereas the Vanishing Cabinet right. was you know, dropped as foreshadowing in Book 5, and it was actually foreshadowed greatly at the beginning of Half-Blood Prince, when uh, Ron, Harry, and Hermione uh, sneak up to um, Morgan and Burks, and they actually see the uh, vanishing cabinet uh, blocking yeah. um, blocking the view of the counter. So that one you could make an argument for, you know, we, we sprinkled enough clues that you could look at it. I just didn't see that with the, with the hole in the lake. But you know what? It's a hole in the lake. Who cares? I mean, I think my, my one thing about the scene was that it just seemed too big and too uh, heavy for, for the fic. It just seemed like a much more quiet approach would have actually had more of an emotional impact. And as we see in these chapters we're going to cover tonight, it's usually always the, the, the more quiet approach that really gets to the reader. So that was all I was saying there. Yeah, well, and I just love that they all got Voldemort and his Dementor groupies got vanished to the Island of Lost. <laughs> <laughs> and that they should get copyrights for this <laughs> I told her when she in my email to her I mentioned when she writes the uh, the follow up to after the end that deals with Voldemort and his dementors at the Jay Z Penny that when she gives me you know my my, my due for that you know my name is spelled R Y and there's a Y in there I just thought that was great I love yeah. Sonia I know I just love that she's a normal person who watches Lost. <laughs> having to remember you know i don't i don't think about after the end and i'm like what i live by it i don't understand this i adjust my whole life around after the end (laughs) she keeps going i'm afraid to go back and reread what we actually wrote and i'm like what what What? (laughs) it's wonderful you have every little detail memorized you wrote it (laughs) oh god 
Oh, actually, um, before we go any further, uh, Zenya left me an email a few weeks ago uh, regarding episode one and her uh, feedback to it. At the time, we weren't going to, you know, release any of her feedback. We were going to try and hold everything for the interview, and then we kind of changed that. She actually said one thing very interesting about the relationship good. between – Good that she said something interesting or good that I'm going to release it? Good that you're releasing it because <laughs> okay. I remember I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know things. <laughs> Um, so what I'm going to do is, uh, she, she left some, uh, some interesting tidbits about the relationship between Sirius and Remus. And it was actually very relevant to our conversation last week about why he would have just popped into the study the way he did. I'm actually going to uh, play that clip now and I'm going to try and, uh, use some of, um, her quotes from that first, uh, response to us over the course of the next few episodes to get it out there. So, uh, let's go back to Xenia for a moment. Regarding Remus, regarding Sirius, are they or aren't they? We never said, I'm pretty sure. Um, Arabella and I were pretty much shipping Remus and Sirius uh, before Half-Blood Prince. Um, it was the one slash ship that we would really let onto the Sugar Quill because we felt that it, it could be considered canon. Um, we didn't think there was anything that went against it in canon, and we did want to allow some slash stories at the Sugar Quill, so that seemed like a good thing for us to have. Um, but in terms of the story, we tried to leave it as ambiguous as possible. Um, we kept dropping hints about how many bedrooms were at Lupin Lodge and how many beds and where was everyone sleeping. Um, but I don't think we ever really came out and said anything. But I like to think that Remus and Sirius um, do act in the story like an old married couple or at least, you know, an old married couple or people who have just been friends for a really long time. I will say that I did actually get a pretty clear picture of Lupin Lodge. You know, besides where Remus and Sirius were, I, I felt that I knew where the girls' bedroom was and the boys' bedroom and the study and the bathroom, you know, that kind of thing. I'm curious, though, um, what do you think about the possibility that Remus and Sirius were actually involved? Does that change this fic for you in any way? Does that... No, it doesn't change the fic for me anyway. I, you know, after reading this fic, and, and I really did. I remember reading it once through about a year ago and looking for their relationship. Mm -hmm. I, I finally decided that they had a very heterosexual relationship, um, that it wasn't romantic. Because I really read, like, looking for that specific yeah. thing. You know, there's no reference at all towards them being homosexual or even having a romantic anything at all. Yeah. What I like about the way, and this is what, you know... Uh, Zenia just said, I like the fact, and I've decided I'm just going to pronounce it Zenia. I can't change. Um, one of the things uh, Zenia said was, it's open-ended so that you can take from it what you will. I, when reading it yeah. the first time, expected that, and when it didn't develop, I kind of dropped uh -huh. that. The important thing is, they're as close as people can get. It's beyond friendship. It's beyond family. They are just so yeah. intertwined through their lives, and that's all you need from it. If you want to imply there's something romantic going on, they sprinkle enough clues, like with the bedrooms, or um, you know, from last week's episode with him, you know, popping into the to the study every day to spend some time with Remus and his overprotectiveness. You can you can view it through whatever lens you wish, and I and I like that. They kind of leave it up to the reader to kind of make their own adventure there. So I I just thought that was great. Well, I have to point out that even, you know, we keep talking about their relationship, their relationship, and, and I really got that they had a really, the one that you're describing in the early scenes of this fic, but as Sirius is getting more and more involved with the ministry, I feel that Remus is the one that's working towards them keeping 
a relationship. Like, although when they when they finally do settle in, it's just like old times. But, I mean, they've been arguing. They've been yelling at each other. Obviously, we don't expect one of them to get kicked out. or yeah. But they're comfortable enough to fight. But, but I don't... I'm feeling a little bit like their relationship is starting new in a different, mature way. Not necessarily continuing, but where Sirius brings home all his work and Rima says, well, you know, do you want me to help you? And then Remus makes the comment that it was really nice because it reminded him of when they were younger, working side by side. Yeah, that's chapter 12. That's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the chapter when uh, Sirius discovers about the... Uh the Wolfsbane potion. And I think what you just yeah. said is very profound because that's what every character is going through in this fic. Every character is picking up old relationships and they're all starting in a different way. Uh, just because yes. so much has happened that's shattered the longevity of their lives that you, you can't just pick up, you know, an old relationship from a few years ago, whether it be a friendship or whether it be romantic, everything is just starting new and starting from a different base. So especially, right. you know, serious Remus, which I think is one of the more, uh, interesting uh, relationships in in the fic, and there's so many different relationships going on at once, but I really enjoy uh, the way they write both of these uh, characters. Uh-huh. I will say that I think what I got from this was that possibly at an earlier date when they were kids, they were more romantic, and now they're trying to be friends. Maybe, you know, maybe some of that. You know, what's really interesting about this relationship, and it's one of the reasons I'm so attached to it, it never existed in the canon. You see mm-hmm. a little bit of it at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban. It's non-existent in Goblet of Fire. You see dribs and drabs of it in Order of the Phoenix, and that's it. And you never got to see these characters mature, and you never got to see the two marauders together again. So I, I, it's one of the reasons I'm so attached to the story, because it gives you those second chances. I know. I have to admit that I love this fic probably more than I love canon. <laughs> we have a topic up on the Parfic Weekly Forum. Uh, what character from Harry Potter are you most like? And my answer to it was actually after the end, Remus. So it's it's <laughs> yes. like, it's like yeah, forget the canon. I'm going with after the end. So let's get jumping with our chapters here. Chapter 15, the bar brawl. I bet Rin is kicking herself for not being here because she was, I think, really looking forward to discussing this chapter. It reminds me so much of reading Order of Phoenix. I literally want to jump through the computer screen and punch Malfoy. Yes, I did too. Okay, on to chapter 16 of... No, just um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're like, I'm very angry. Move on. Uh, I know. It's one of those scenes now. It leaves us off with Ron and Hermione just not able to come to an understanding. Ron is furious at Hermione. Hermione is furious at Ron. It starts us off with Ron at the pub. And he's mixing drinks for people. And he's dealing with a couple of his old acquaintances from Hogwarts. I like that they inserted into his character that he knows he needs to go back to Hermione. And he knows he needs to fix yeah. this. And yeah. I could easily see an incarnation of Ron where you know it's her fault. She'll come to me when she's ready. He needs her so much. He just knows he needs to get back there. He needs to fix this problem. I just thought that was a really great uh, character moment for him that he at least recognizes that you need to talk. You need to fix these things. It was the first time Goldie had employed him that Ron really hadn't felt like going to work. You know, and this is Ron, who loves to go to work. He loves having a job. He loves being able to take care of himself. He doesn't feel like going to work. He's so upset about him and Hermione. He doesn't want to go to work. Ron feels so real in this chapter. How many times do you go to work and you're in a great mood and you cut people breaks and you just enjoy being around other people? And how many times do you go mm-hmm. to work in a bad mood and nobody gets favors today? And it just <laughs> I've had that experience so much that I'm like, yeah, I get that. And it just it really yes. pulls you into the... 
into the story, and he still you know can joke around with the more uh, lubricated patrons of the pub, but his mind is off with Hermione, and I just love what goes on with Ron and Hermione in these chapters. Each of them is coming from this own point where they can't reconcile what the other one's saying, and it just... I don't know. It's what we were saying at the end of last week. You just, you know that when you're coming at this from Ron's perspective, when they write from Ron's eyes, you instantly get his vulnerabilities. You instantly get how insecure mm-hmm. this character is. And he is trying so hard to beat back his inner nature, that defensive nature that protects Hermione. He is trying to, to lock that up for her because she needs him to do it. And when she is judgmental of him, when she you know, doesn't recognize how hard he's trying. You just want to strangle her for that. But then you look at this from Hermione's perspective and you instantly get that Ron is not being supportive of her and why she needs to do this. And, you know, just that callous attitude he has towards her wanting to go off to train with the thinker. And one of the things that's fixed us so amazingly well is every time you're in someone's mind, every time it's being written from someone's perspective, you'll go to the mat for that person because you agree with them so much and nobody else is right. And you're getting this from all the perspectives. So you should be more judgmental as a reader, but you're not. They just suck you into that mindset of each character and you always feel for whoever right. you're writing from. And you understand it. Right. And you and here's the thing. Okay, so as the chapter progresses, you know, Sirius shows up at the pub and yes. he starts talking about, you know, the amazing thing that Ginny did and how he's apologized to Ginny, but you know, wanted to apologize to Ron to as Ron. well. I thought that was a great moment too. It's almost like asking, you know, a dad for his daughter's hand in marriage. It just seemed like one of those things where he recognizes that he has, you know, some culpability to Ron as well for the way he treated Ron's sister. I just thought that was a very uh, great moment between these two guys. Well, it gave me a sense. Like, for to me, the whole wizarding universe is, is a little, I don't want to say behind the times, but but in the past, sort of. You know, they, the way they dress, the way they act, their mannerisms, the morals, like everything is a little bit you know, 100 years ago for us. Yeah, you get that it, sense too. Um, <laughs> I can't remember who said this. It may have actually been you on the forums earlier. Someone made the comment, you know, why are they, you know, not wearing robes or why are they still wearing robes? And, <laughs> or, you know, you know, you had asked this earlier, why are they still wearing jeans instead of their robes? Because yeah. they're kids, because they're around muggle-borns who wear jeans and they're comfortable and they're, you don't want to wear what your parents wore. You want to wear your own thing. So and exactly. it's even the great moment later on with Molly that really underscores that. And Yes. Yeah. I just thought that was a really uh, great thing for Sirius to do. It's a very humbling thing, too, to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I want to apologize. And then to apologize to you know that person's older brother. It, just, it really shows that Sirius isn't the stunted 24-year-old who's been in Azkaban all of his life. It really shows that he's a man and he's responsible and he understands that he has to do certain things when he's mistaken. I just, I thought that really said a lot about Sirius. And just, when you read him and after the end, it's so hard to realize that he's still not there in the canon because this character just seems like he is just so important to the story that when he's not there, it just, it, it seems odd. Like, I, when I read, you know, the, the actual canon, I'm waiting for him to come walking in the room, you know, in Half-Blood Prince. It just, it doesn't seem like he's really gone. Well, I just think it's so interesting because Ron, to me, is like one of the only characters that Sirius treats as an adult right from the beginning. I mean, and Harry, Harry's always going to be a kid to him, I guess, because he was around him as a baby. Ginny is a kid. He treats her like a kid. You know, now he's got some respect for her, but he still thinks she's a kid. But Ron, he's always talked very man-to-man, like, with Ron. 
Have you noticed that? Yeah, let's talk about that because that's interesting in this chapter too. Um, as uh, you know, this chapter ends and they're walking back, uh, you know, towards the Lupin Lodge. Uh, Ron thinks it's actually very interesting that the great, you know, man that is Sirius Black, man who survived 13 years in Azkaban, who led the Order of the Phoenix, who helped defeat the Dark Lord, this man that he respects so much who when you look at how these characters began you know he broke ron's leg and you know sucked him out to the you know and, and you know dragged him out to the you know the shrieking shack you know making him feel as though he's about to be murdered you know you look you know five years after that at these two guys just walking down you know a street i think that sirius relates so well to ron because ron is just so much like him sirius was James Pother's best friends. Sirius gave his full loyalty to James. They were marauders together. Sirius was the loud mouth, you know, about to, you know, jump over the bar and beat someone up guy. And, and James is always the one to pull him back. And you just get the sense that he sees so much of himself in Ron. Ginny's a little girl who needs to be protected. Harry mm -hmm. is the godson who's his responsibility, who's done so much that he doesn't need to take care of himself anymore. Remus, there's just so much to that relationship. Ron's the one person who has demonstrated he is able to care for himself and who's demonstrated he's just like Sirius. So Sirius actually has a few things he could teach him. Sirius knows when Ron jumps the bar, you have to pull him back. Well, I think that, you know, even Sirius shows at the end of the chapter, you know, he says, I would have killed Draco. I absolutely would have. And, you know, you didn't. And I can't believe you didn't because... <laughs> I think Sirius honestly expected Ron to kill him because Sirius does see them as so similar. I think everything you've said is exactly right, and I completely agree with you. Well, I think Ron fully expected to kill Draco. I mean, I fully expected to kill Draco, and these are fictional characters he's insulting. And just the dynamic of the chapter, and I just want to step back for a moment and just talk about the dynamic of this chapter. You have Draco, you know, saunter into the bar, and he kind of shathers, you know, just the jovial atmosphere that's in there. And his eyes are bloodshot, and he's drunk, and you can smell the alcohol in his breath because he's being yes. very uncharacteristic. He doesn't approach a Weasley without a bodyguard. He doesn't mm -hmm. take on more than he can chew because he, he's a little rich kid who needs someone to stand there and, you know, protect him because he obviously can't protect himself. And one of the things he talked about, I think it was back in, um, I believe it was chapter three or so, maybe uh, chapter four, Draco saw his father die. And yes. one of the things I give this fix so much credit for is that it would be so easy for these characters to write Lucius off as a death either and for his death to be completely warranted and for Draco, you know, to just have to live with what he saw. But this fic and through its characters, they recognize that anyone seeing their father die, you know, it's horrible. Is, is, is horrible. And even Draco Malfoy, even someone who likely orchestrated the torture of the Grangers, it's horrible for them to have to see that. Even when this person is trying to kill, you know, Ron's dad, Ron's best friend, Ron's sister, he still feels pity for Draco for having to see that. And you know yeah. that is the source of Draco's attitude in this chapter towards Ron. Every time Ron tries to justify Draco's father's death, Draco responds with, I saw my father die. He says it, I think, two or three times. Because that is yeah. all that, that's all that matters. And it's very much like the issues that Ron is having with Hermione. Hermione's leaving. That's it. She could have a laundry list of reasons why it's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter. She's leaving. She can't win because she's leaving. And yes. Draco can't find any way around the fact that his father died. And it showed a great deal of maturity on Ron's part to say, if Lucius had killed Arthur and Ron had seen his father die, 
he could have been the one going after Draco in the same way that Draco is going after Ron. Ron is able to pull himself, with all the anger he's feeling, he's able to pull himself out of that situation, and he's really able to sympathize with this person that he hates. And just the, the, the way this chapter is described, he wants to rip Draco's hair off. He wants to just murder him for what he's saying. He goes after Percy. He won't call Percy by the right name. He goes after Hermione. You don't do that. He goes yeah. after Hermione's parents. He just, he knows everybody to press. And there's even a scene where the two characters are circling each other. Wands drawn. Draco has that little smile on his face. He just want to wipe off. Draco is trying to get any edge he can. He's trying to just needle away at Ron. And he knows he did it. One of the things that I think is great about this little character arc you have going between should Ron kill Draco or not is that as much as Hermione doesn't want him to do it, as much as Ron wants to do it, and I don't mean, you know, kill. I mean, you know, just defend someone's honor, you know, to fight back. Yes. Even Hermione gets, you know, there's times when you have to slug the guy. Right. Well, yeah. And there's even a, uh, like a line, I think it's up in chapter uh, 18 or 19, where she says, you know, Ron isn't the only person who wants to punch people. You brought up a couple of different points that I wanted to uh, emphasize on. Okay. You said uh, that Ron was able to step away from the situation and, and see where Draco is coming from. In regards to watching his father die, you know, he can see it. Well, I mean, I think a lot of times we forget how actually um, analytical and strategic Ron actually is. I mean, I think in comparison to Hermione, everyone is dumb. But but you know what I mean? But, he, yeah. but Ron is not stupid. And I think I really like how Arabella and Zinnia emphasize this show that... He is capable of thinking. He's capable of figuring things out, and he without Hermione, yeah. and he's actually a smart person. Just he, we never get to see that side of him because Hermione is so smart. Yeah, um, Hermione's book that was smart. Really- Hermione's book smart, but she's very clumsy, at least in in the canon. She's very clumsy when it comes to people. Ron is very, like you said, he's a tactician. He is the guy who can kick anyone's butt at chess. And they show you that over (laughs) and over, but you really haven't seen it underscored since, I think, the end of Philosopher's Stone. Right. That really comes out in Deathly Hallows, because I really believe that those two books are going to be linked at the hip. Uh, but me too. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> I hope so too. But you know, it just—it's one of those great moments where Ron, and you can just picture Ron—he's trying so hard to hold back, and you have Draco throwing his financial status, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's family, his dead brother—he's throwing everything on the table, trying to get a rise out of Ron. Ron takes the bait. Ron doesn't care because you know what? There's sometimes when it's—it's it, it, not worth it to hold back. It's not worth it to not take the bait. There's some things that are worth defending, and I love how you know some of the characters bring that up so much. I mean, uh, I believe. Uh, I love how much the characters keep referencing, why did we fight this war? I mean, Molly thinks we fought it, you know, to preserve, you know, our wizarding Wizarding. customs in our robes, because we have to wear wizarding robes. That's why we fought Voldemort. He wanted to make us all wear dresses. (laughs) And, you know, Hermione brings it up earlier, too, when she says that it's not worth it. Ron says, why why did I fight this war? I fought this to defend people. And I love the moment when uh, Ron and Sirius are walking back towards Lupin Lodge, and Sirius says, it wasn't worth it. And Ron says, Hermione was worth it. And Sirius says, Hermione wouldn't have died. It's not worth spending 12 years in Azkaban. And I just love that moment. They're both right, and it's a great point. I just love the fact that Ron's perspective is Hermione is worth anything. Draco walks in there. He's obviously drunk. And Ron notices it. 
you know, he's used to seeing drunk people. He's used mm-hmm. to seeing inebriated people. I think that helps him step away. He realizes that Draco is not in his right mind, and he's going to say things. And, and Ron is smart enough to understand that Draco is not in the right mindset right now. No matter what, it, it's going to be just ten times worse than he would normally act. And Actually, I think it deflates him a little bit, too, because Ron is ready to just pound this kid into the ground, and he realizes Draco's drunk, he realizes he's slurring his speech, he's acting, you know, not in his own best interest, and Ron just kind of calms down and says, get out of here. Ron is honorable. I mean, he is in a, he's a Gryffindor and he's brave, but more than anything, he's honorable, he you know? I thought that was just really fabulous that they let him step away, and, and that is what made him pity Draco to see what he's allowing himself to become and I think that that Ron can actually see himself in that position thinking that he would probably be acting exactly the same way and and that's and that's hard for him Ron holds back when Draco throws everything but the kitchen sink at him and everyone there knows it everyone there hears it <laughs> and if you're wondering why Jen is laughing listen to the blooper reel <laughs> Sorry. And you have, you know, Ron and Draco are circling each other. Their wands are raised. All of the drunk patrons at the bar suddenly become very sober. And they're, you know, raising their wands, you know, ready to defend mm-hmm. Ron. And, you know, uh, Jimmy McMillan and Andy Quinn and their two dates are all grabbing their wands. I love, you know, a double date that, you know, leads to, you know, wand battles. And they're all just ready well, to back this guy up. And Draco is so overmatched and he's so weak and he's so showing all of his cards that... The only victory he gets in any sense here is when Ron takes him outside, he gets to knock a guy down by hitting him from behind when he's not paying attention. It's the weakest yeah. It's the weakest form of attack. It's like literally shooting someone in the back, you know, when they're not expecting mm-hmm. it. And Draco is so weak and he shows it in the scene so much. And even after the scene is over, you know, the only way he can possibly, you know, try and, you know, cobble together any type of victory is to literally sue Ron. And it's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing, but Draco just, you, you get the sense that Draco has gone off the deep end. Draco has fully collapsed in on himself. He's just as broken as any of these characters. He has no support mechanism, and he, he just has nothing left at all. Money doesn't mean a thing. He's trying to buy his way into, yeah. onto you know, Quidditch team. He just has nothing left, and he knows it. And you really come off pitying Draco in the scene even more. I can really see what... Oh, you do! What, you know, Jenny was saying in back in Chapter 6. It's just you really just... The guy's got nothing. I know you feel for Draco in this scene. I mean, you don't really feel for Ron. You're proud of Ron. You're 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 proud of the way he handled it. And I think it's such a Weasley thing. You can insult me to the death, but if you insult my friend, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. You know, type thing with Hermione, especially. I just love Ron. I mean, you you finally go. Oh my gosh, Ron has finally finally grown up. He's someone who we can admire now and look up to. He's the guy who we want to be like. And then. Malfoy is just the guy who is so broken that even in, I think, hit Malfoy, I feel for Malfoy probably just as much as I do Harry in this thing, which I think is very strange way that they, they put him in there, but they, they are, they're up there together for me. You well, know, it's they're interesting horrible. too, because, and I brought this up in the previous chapter, how many fics do you have where it's Harry versus Draco? This fic is entirely Harry versus Ron. These are the two characters butting heads all the time. And yes. A and Z really just created that from the ground up because, you know, these, these characters just have, you know, so much backstory built into the story. And I just really like what you just said there. You know, this story is as much as anything, the story about Ron finding out who he is. If Hermione's off becoming a thinker and Harry's off, 
you know, on dragging back, you know, protecting people from dementors and everyone's doing their own thing. Who is Ron? He's more than a bartender. This is him just, you know, buying time until he figures that out. This character has no idea who he is and he needs to figure that out. But this, this chapter does show one thing. He's a very honorable guy. Well, they're walking back and Sirius is saying, I can't, I would have killed him. I would have. Yeah, I no have one it. was hurt. It wouldn't have been worth. Yeah, I have it right it, here. I would have killed him. Sirius's voice broke into Ron's string of, of mental threats. His tone was mild and even, but Ron sensed the truth behind it, and he turned his head to give his honest answer. I, I think I was about to. That's why I stopped you. He's not worth 12 years in prison. Sirius stopped walking in front of Lewis Manor's wide, manicured lawn and looked straight at Ron. Not much is. Hermione is. Ron felt a burn in his face, saying those words aloud in the dark, quiet street but they were true. Sirius smiled briefly. Her life is, absolutely, but that wasn't at stake. I'm not sure that Sirius actually feels that anything is worth it. I'm not sure. I mean, he, obviously he regrets what, you know, being accused for something he didn't do and all that, but I'm not so sure that anything would be worth Sirius not having to go back at this point. You know what I mean? I do. Now, how much do you think Sirius wanting to defend Ron when, of course, we find out that Draco was, you know, presumably badly injured. He's, he whacked his head on the rock outside of the pub. And even though there are witnesses, you know, it, it could be pretty bad for Ron. This is actually Hermione's worst nightmare, that something would happen yes. and Ron would be taken away from her. What do you think yes. of Sirius is offering to defend Ron? Originally, I took it just as he, you know, offered to look after Jenny and as he was trying to take care of anyone. The sense I got from it after thinking about it for a while was Sirius sees someone innocent about to be accused of a crime they didn't commit. Sirius obviously had that happen to him, so that's why he's especially looking after Ron, because like everything I said before, he just feels so closely connected with, with Ron. Yeah, I thought that was a little, you know, I, I they had made a comment earlier about him, you know, dabbling in law <laughs> for a hobby or yeah. something, and then suddenly he's like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and I thought... He can be a lawyer? Like, don't you have to be a lawyer to be a lawyer? I think and all the lawyers are dead. I think Voldemort got them all. He went I after don't them. know. <laughs> I, I mean, I really liked the idea of there being court, but I thought, you know, serious, you know, he was going to be like the head of the thing with the dragons, and then he was going to do this, and like, evidently he is a renaissance man in the law department, because... He is very capable, and it's sad that he couldn't find a loophole for himself because he seems to find loopholes for everybody else. Sirius is kind of the James Sokoloff of the Wizarding World. For those of you not in New England, you may not be aware of what I'm saying. But, uh, yeah, Sirius, uh, he seems to be a multitasker, but... Uh, well, actually, my, my response to that was I thought Sirius was the prosecutor, so my question like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. I can bet you I'm like Fred Flintstone running back and forth between the two tables, you know, both prosecuting and defending Ron. Well, like, nobody even questions it. He's like, I'm defending you. And everybody's like, okay. Like, <laughs> you obviously have qualifications. <laughs> Do you know what you're doing? Can you picture serious, like, like about to perform, like, open-heart surgery? Have you ever done this before? I'm going to save your life. Okay. <laughs> or Padfoot doing it. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> Oh gosh, this is going to be another laughing episode. It's just, you know, and it's believable, and I kind of just went, okay. <laughs> but, but you, know. you have to admit, too, and I love Sirius, but you have to admit, you're, you're pretty down to the dumps as a society when your head prosecutor is the convicted felon who went away for 12 years. <laughs> 
like for, you're going to have a chance. <laughs> but don't worry, the, the incompetent guy who tried to surrender the entire government cleared them, so we're good. You just have to imagine being Joe Citizen who's never met these people going, what? Well, can you imagine the jury? They're like, who? Who's defending you? Oh, that guy that we run inside for when he comes and gets his mail. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yes, I loved the fact that Sirius went to law school, too. <laughs> well, maybe Azkaban had one of those, you know, like, work-study programs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that's got to be another outtake that somebody needs to write about oh, serious discovering law in Azkaban. I'm still waiting for my fan art about Voldemort in the J.C. Penny cosmetics counter. All right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, back to work. Okay. Um, all right. One thing I did really appreciate about the scene is you have, and we're kind of taking this chapter a little bit out of order here, so try and hold on. Yeah, Is that sorry. Ron get back to the Lupin Lodge, and Harry's the mm-hmm. first one to see him, and his, his face is all cut up, and he's got, because, uh, you know, because the, you had the ring just hit him in the head, and, you know, just, you know, smash up his face, and you see Harry about to charge out the door after Malfoy. Can we just say how much I love Harry's reaction here? Like, at first, he's shocked and concerned, and then he's like, he went into war mode. He went he into war calm. mode. He's charging out that door. He's going to go get Malfoy. Ron stops him and says, don't worry, I took care of it. And, you know, Harry mm-hmm. turns around and says, you stunned him? And he says, well, no, I didn't have my wand. You know, I, you know, I, I just hit him with my fist. And Harry gets this lopsided grin in his face. He's like, you decked Malfoy. It's about time someone <laughs> yeah. did that. And you just love that little brotherly moment. He's been a thorn in their side for so long, and it just felt right. so good. Even if you're going to go to jail for it, it felt so good to just pound the guy into the ground. And then you see Hermione on the stairs. And she's like, language. <laughs> and you just see Harry's face go limp, like, you're on your own, buddy. You know, I feel for you, man. And Harry runs for his life. And here's the thing. You just saw this entire thing from Ron's perspective. You saw how hard he tried. You saw yeah. how, you know, here's the thing. Anyone who, you know, read this chapter and if you were Ron, wouldn't have decked Malfoy, you know, please email Ryan at powerfectweekly.com. I'd like to talk to you because I think we should bring you on the show because I can't imagine, you know, anyone yeah. not wanting to deck him after that. Hermione wasn't there. She doesn't know. And you know she's instantly going to jump to conclusions. Yeah. I hate that she does it too, though. She doesn't even want to know at the – she's like – oh, she's like my mother sometimes where she comes in and why is there blood on your face? obviously, whatever you say, it's going to be ridiculous because you didn't keep your promise. Like, there's no doubt in her mind that Ron screwed up. Well, I don't even think it was that, and I'm going to disagree with you there. And I actually had one of those conversations with my mother today where I was saying one thing, she was hearing another, and I was about to, you know, punch a hole through the wall because it was so frustrating. I'm like, if you would stop and listen for two seconds, you would hear what I'm actually saying and not what you're hearing. I think Hermione, from the beginning, knew that Ron would defend her. Hermione knew that Ron would try. And I think she obviously looks at him and knows that he didn't succeed, that something happened. But I never got the sense from reading it, and I tried to read it back from her perspective and just kind of imagine. I think that she got I think that she got it, that he had at least tried. She does I don't think she's accusing him of, you know, you know, callously disregarding, you know, her wishes. But the way she verbalizes it sounds like she doesn't trust him you know she's checking his face she's asking how malfoy is so of course ron jumps well, off the deep end and says oh you're care- you're concerned about him you're not concerned about me hermione's just petrified that you know they're going to come knocking on the door and take him away from her now well at the very beginning though i mean there it says she'd heard him this appointment was clear 
crystal clear in her voice. But I do agree with you what you're saying because then they say, and worry within her eyes. She was freaked out. Not angry, but really worried. Right. And I can understand how Ron would get very uppity because one of the things I can't stand is when I'm saying something to someone and they're not listening to me and they're hearing me. <laughs> it gets so frustrating. And you can instantly turn into a raving lunatic within minutes if someone does this to you. <laughs> and of course, that sets Hermione off and that, you know, reinforces in her mind the fact that, you know, Ron, you know, obviously, you know, didn't succeed with what she asked him to do. And, yes. you know, then you have Sirius come to the door and his face is pale and he says, uh, he says, I don't want to go to this part. We have to. It's it's. This is the part that I like skip over because it hurts me. And you know he he says that you know Draco was badly hurt. He hit his head in a rock. He's been taken to St. Mungo's. You know I'm gonna defend you. You know and see earlier for our <laughs> thoughts on that. And I love his like loyalty though. Like mm-hmm. he just jumps to Ron's defense and is like. I was there, and I know you didn't do it. It's something serious, but you didn't do anything wrong. I'm going to make sure everybody else knows. He needs a cape. He does. (laughs) Well, he has a cloak, so maybe that works. But, you know, (laughs) I do love the fact that Hermione says, I'm going upstairs. I'm telling them not to come down. I'm going to be down in a few minutes. I'm getting changed. And she gets up on their Mm tiptoes, kisses him on the lips, and says, I believe you. And I really (sighs) got the sense she believed him the whole time, but this is Hermione. Hermione doesn't verbalize things well. Hermione's the well, mother of the group and She I, said that for his for his benefit. No, of I don't course think so. she believed him. I really see I do she knew he was worried and she wanted him to know make it very clear that she was behind him. Don't freak out. I'm gonna be right back. Just hang on for two seconds. I'm gonna go get some clothes on. Does do you think that she believed that he didn't start it on purpose? Do you think she believed what he was saying? I do. I do absolutely. Okay. But she was telling him it for his benefit. Oh, I think she was too. And I just think that it reinforces that that was what she was thinking the entire time. Yeah. Although just, you know, if you look at her reactions, she's concerned that someone's going to come to the door and get him. She's concerned that Draco was badly hurt and would press charges. She's, you know, not getting right out there. Because this is Hermione. She doesn't think things through. She's well, not good. Hermione isn't good with people. Hermione's book smart. She's not people smart. And she comes across as completely, you know, disregarding everything that Ron just went through. When, in actuality, she's doing things very orderly, very logically. She's making sure that, you know, Draco wasn't hurt so he couldn't press charges. She's making well, sure. And it just, that's just the way she does things. She goes down a checklist with her little, you know, rose cape brown clipboard. And she just makes sure of things. And it comes across as callous. Yeah. And when she realized well, no. the situation, I think she was right there for him. And she reinforced the fact that even though she hadn't said it, she does trust him. And she does believe him. And I want to point out that everyone in this fic has the worst fear that we all seem to know what is. And they're just like, oh, I can't face it. I can't face it. And then in the face of their worst fear, they all handle it with grace and do you know what I mean? They handle it really well. And I think this is her handling her worst fear. And it's just beautiful to watch because she does it so much better than we ever expected her to do. And that's what I like so much is that they have these fears and yet they can overcome them and watching them overcome them is so appealing to the reader. Yeah. It is to me. Does well, that make any sense? No, it makes perfect <laughs> sense. We, we read these facts because we love these characters and each author puts these characters in different situations and we get to see how these people bounce off each other, you know, kind of like bumper cars and they, how they react to each other. And yeah, we get to see what Hermione's made of. This is her worst fear. It comes true. She's taking charge and she's going to be okay. And this yes. is one of Ron's probably greatest fears. 
that, you know, he's going to let everybody down. And we'll let Hermione down. Right. And she believes him. And you can just tell the minute she tells him that he firms up and he can take whatever comes through that door. Uh, I just love the inner strength that she gives him. <sighs> he goes, okay, you can let them in. You know, I just, oh. What does Renan not see with these two characters? How can Renan not be a Hermione Ron Shipper? I know. Who can't not love them? We're jumping to chapter 16, which is Empty Nest. This is one of my favorite chapters to read. It definitely takes a break from just the tension of the last chapter, and it just really, um, it just makes you really enjoy these characters and just lets you have some fun with these characters. And I think it's definitely an effect that's so dark at times. It was just definitely needed. Uh, this chapter starts off with Bill in his bedroom getting an urgent uh, message from his father that something's wrong with Ron. And I have it right in front of me here. It's, um, we've got another hour until, you know, quote unquote, your mother gets downstairs and sees the paper. Get over here and help me figure this out. <laughs> and you have to love it. And I don't know how many of you have ever seen a series called uh, Yes, Prime Minister, um, starring Paul Ennington. It's a British comedy about this very quirky um, prime minister of uh, Great Britain who is at this moment about to be, you know, just slaughtered by his political rivals. He looks at his head civil servant and, you know, his face kind of drops and he's like, help! And it's just, it's, I just, it's just, you know, Arthur's the, you know, the minister of magic and he's like, get over here and help me figure this out. And dad, I just, I I just love that moment. It's just, of course, you know, Bill rushes, um, you know, to the ministry and Sirius is there and Charlie flies through the door. Charlie's entrance makes me really sad for him. Why is that? Well, okay. First, can I just point out that when Charlie comes bursting through the door, he is yet again not dressed. He's wearing <laughs> pajama bottoms and, his, <laughs> and, like a and no shirt. And like a coat or something, right? <laughs> and I really like that his dragon tattoo on his chest is still sleeping. <laughs> like, it's hysterical. You have and to- like... You have Bill to just is like realize. Rolling his eyes. You, yeah. you just have to realize it's like by the grace of God that Charlie can remember to wear underwear in the morning. It's like you just have to know that he's one of those guys that's <laughs> twenty five minutes ahead of everything else he's doing in the day, and he, he he's already at the office when really in actuality he's just climbing out of bed. And it's, I just thought it was a great moment. So he bounds through the door, not wearing a but towel. But he's so worried. Like at least this time, it's not him just being an idiot. Like he's honestly rushed because he thinks something warlike is wrong and he's gone in there and he doesn't know that it's wrong he doesn't know what it is but whatever it is he knows it's serious and he's got to figure it out and i love that little moment they drop in there where um he says well didn't you read the note well i didn't get a note so bill instantly realizes okay you lost the note already but you know whatever <laughs> and then you and then he picks up a copy of the um of the daily prophet article uh robert weasley son of minister of magic <laughs> arthur weasley and they're reading through it um and I just love Charlie's reaction. I, I laughed out loud when it gets to the part about how Draco Malfoy is battling for his life after Ron attacked him. And, and Charlie's response is, no, really? And then he just kind of keeps reading it. And, of course, they go to oh, Pansy Park. he pa- laughs. Well, no, they go he to Pansy like- Well, then here's the thing. They go to Pansy Parkinson for, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, her thoughts on the subject. And then Ron, or, I'm sorry, <laughs> Roland has a terrible temper and how Mrs. Malfoy's all clamped and she just can't even talk about it. And, um, I, I yeah, just, what is it? Robert 
it and, then Roland. and then Roland and they really <laughs> definitely predicted Slughorn there. I just want to say, um, but then, <laughs> I love it near the end of it. Arthur Weasley, the interim minister of magic has not made any comment to the daily prophet at the time of the publication. His son was also unavailable for comment. Here's the part. Although it is rumored that Sirius Black known and then in parentheses cleared known felon is already representing him. <laughs> it's just like, Come on, I feel like I'm watching Fox News here, you know, with all due respect. But it's just, I'm like, come on. It just, And then, of course, they all kind of look at each other. And like you just said, they burst out laughing. And it's just, you know, you have to love Arthur. He's like, boys, this is very serious. And then even he wait, starts wait, 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 wait. Up laughing. Before even Charlie starts laughing, like, like honestly thinks that Charlie could be upset and, like, steps forward to, like, comfort Charlie. Well, we all do. I think it's very funny. <laughs> well, we all do, because, you know, Bill, we have an urgent message. You have to get here right away. My uncle is my father's older brother, and some kids were teasing my father once, and my uncle punched the kid out who did it. And he got home, and mother was on the phone with the boy's mother, and said, you know, Robert, did you, did you punch out this child? And my uncle nods his head, yes, I did. And my grandfather says, what happened? He's like, you know, he, he, he insulted Paul, so I, I punched him three times. And my grandfather's response was, I would have hit him four times. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's the same thing. You can tell Arthur's like, I would have nailed him twice. It's just like, you, you can tell that's Arthur's response. His biggest concern is, you know, Molly's going to kill him. <laughs> Uh, well, they're trying to hide it from Molly. How can we fix this to where she doesn't even have to find out? Because Molly's going to overreact and freak uh, out. I just love the moment when Arthur is, you know, listening to the article being read. And Ron is described as someone who you always have to keep your eye on them because you never know when they're going to get set off. And he just mothers to himself. I wonder where she gets that from and points to a picture of Molly on his desk. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah. you can tell they're trying to defend this poor kid from his mother who would have done the exact same thing. You can picture Molly just, you know pounding this kid into the <laughs> it just you know what I mean oh that would be a f- oh that would be a great I've read fix where that's happened too and I think it's awesome but really know, oh I have I'll, I'll give you some I haven't I'll give you a recommendation later it's uh, anything by Night Zephyr basically ends with you know Molly attacking Draco at one point or another yes uh, I would have to can I can I say one thing like earlier before Charlie and Bill even got there Bill comes in and he's overhearing Arthur tell Sirius just let him sleep. He needs his sleep. Right. And I thought, oh, that's such a fatherly thing to do, especially, and it's a little strange because we've we've been seeing how adult-like Ron is being, and then, and then it's so strange to kind of step back and go, Sirius is being his guardian and his dad is telling what to do. And yeah. I think that I, I felt that I liked it from Arthur, but at the same time, I thought it a bit condescending towards Ron. Well, not really. I mean, Ron... He's still a kid. He's still 17 years old. He's, he's a man, you know, according to Wizarding Law, but he's still Arthur's youngest son, and son. he's still a kid. I guess so. And you have to love the way, you know, the parents Weasley deal with this kid. Arthur wants to let him sleep, and Molly's aghast that how dare he be sleeping at a time like this. And yes. Just, uh, you, you can tell that <laughs> Arthur just, Arthur's the one who really makes the decisions in this family, but Molly thinks she does, but it's just, you know, and they all spend their time trying to get around Molly. I just think it's such an interesting uh, Weasley family dynamic. And then, of course, you have Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown arriving on the scene. So don't worry, everybody. Everything will be fine because Secretary Privy <laughs> Rose K. Brown is on the scene. And we jump back into the issue with the dragons at the moment. And we find that they're having some difficulty coming up with uh, dragon riders for the yeah, planet as which, we have a troll. 
they're all shocked that that is the case. Because really, who would want to you know, possibly do that job? You survive a war, so the first thing you're going to do is jump on a dragon. I mean, Mick and Charlie are the only people crazy enough to want to do that. You know, though, when they said, oh, they're, they're, we're not going to have a problem in finding writers, I believed them. I thought, there's got to be lots of crazy wizards out there like them. And well, I was actually shocked to find out that there weren't. Well, and one thing I think I commented on this earlier, it really shows, you know, if, if Sirius is personally prosecuting a third of, the, you know, the the wizarding population, then, you know, it, it implies that in this yeah, story, so. there's a very small wizarding population. So nine people, you know, everyone knows the Weasleys, everyone knows Harry, nine people may be a significant, you know, percentage of the, of the wizarding populace. So I, I really didn't have so much of a problem uh, with that. One thing that did jump out at me, I love that Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown is good friends with uh, N. Flummery, the Daily Prophet staff writer, you know, who, you know, always seemed to like me when I was in school. So, you know, Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown's going to try and sort that out. Um, I just like that little <laughs> dynamic that she's essentially, everybody likes her. I think they're all afraid mm-hmm. of her clipboard, but everybody likes her. So I just thought that was an interesting <laughs> little layer they add to her character. You know, we as the readers always hate anyone who's a staff writer for the Daily Prophet, you know, other than Eloise. And, yes. you know, I, I just love that Rose's perspective is, oh, no, it's, it's all right. I, I can deal with her. She, she's really not that bad. Or he's really not that, but I can't remember if it was a he. No, it is a she. Um, it's a she. Yeah, she corrects yeah. them on that. Um, but you ever notice <laughs> in this story, they always think it's a man, but then it turns out to be, it's the same thing with Fleur. Oh, when he gets here, send him in. It's just, you know. Yes. It's such a misogynist world, isn't it? It so is. Right. So is. So is. So we leave the office of the Minister of Magic, you know, knowing that these people are going to try and come together to save Ron, not from the wizarding, you know, judicial system, not from... Death Eaters, but from Molly Weasley. And we jump to <laughs> Penelope Weasley, who's having much the same problem. Now, this is our first This is our first uh, interaction with Penelope. And really, if you think about the broader implications of the Harry Potter universe, you know, if you're new and you just read the canon and you, and you come to this fic, this is the first time I think you even see Penelope, you know, other than, you know, a few moments you know, here and there, you know, in the hallways of Hogwarts. Well, we've heard about her. We've heard about her. We've, you know, I don't think we've seen her yet. We've never seen her. You know, she got petrified by a basilisk, and that's about it. And they really had the ability here to create the character from the ground up. All, mm-hmm. all they had to go by was her name. And they created a character who, believably, was madly in love with Percy Weasley. And they give Percy so much depth in this story, which is outstanding, due to the fact that although we never hear a word from Percy, we never see him once, we as the readers feel his loss in the story. And you really sense that through poor Penelope, who, you know, doesn't speak to her parents, is estranged from her parents, is living... What did you think about that? I think it's something that I know they touch upon later in the story. Okay. But it just... It was another thing that I just went... Okay. <laughs> you know, at the moment. More on this later. Hermione's parents have been taken away from her due to medical problems, whereas Penelope's parents are out there but have essentially you know, no ties with her. So she's alone, and mm-hmm. all she has is her, her dead husband's family. And Molly Weasley isn't probably easy to live with, you know, in the best of circumstances. And it's just such an interesting dynamic because throughout so much of this story – your family are the people who you depend on. You choose yes. your own family. You know, Remus chooses Sirius and Harry, and Harry chooses Ron and Hermione and Ginny. And if you think about it, the only blood relative that Harry has is discarded, and you never hear from her again. Harry's entire family is built around people who just love him for being him, not because they quote unquote have to because of his blood. And right. 
it's so interesting as a reader to think about Penelope. This isn't a family that she is particularly close to. This is a family, you know, that, you know, within the last year, you know, Molly's called her a scarlet woman, and she's never really gotten along with these people. To, I know. But when Molly calls Molly's her been scar- horrible. She's been horrible many, to this do we, have a run, do we have a running tally of how many people Molly's called a scarlet woman? We had Hermione, we had Penelope. But, you know... If she does home her little downside occasionally. I will admit that sometimes I don't like Molly Weasley. From Penelope's perspective, she is essentially trapped with a family that she isn't particularly close to. You, all right. she has is the is the unborn child of the only person who she's ever cared for. And she's not comfortable around Molly. You don't know how she is around anybody else. She doesn't talk to right. her parents. The only one she ever you know, was close to is Percy. He's dead. All she has is his unborn child. And she, you know, she feels fat. She feels uncomfortable. She feels, you know, just awful by herself. And it's her anniversary. I want to say that her, her look was not how I pictured it either. The way they described her, I always imagined Penelope as having long, dark, straight hair. You know, maybe being a bit olive skin. As opposed tall. to as opposed to the curly hair. Curly hair, short. Well, the short. The sh- well, yeah, well, the short was explained um, in the plot line. I mean, well, yeah. Well, and let me even jump on that too. Uh, for those of you who listened to, uh, I forget when we even had, and I believe it was episode three of uh, Perfect Weekly, we had the one shot uh, pictures of you by uh, by Dree over at Checkmated, and reading this scene just reminded me so much of that one. And it was just the end of it. For those of you who haven't listened to it yet, um, either go over to Checkmated and uh, look it up. It's called Pictures of You or, uh, you know, listen to episode three. But it ends with, you know, the character of Ron just so furious that Hermione has, has died that he rips the house apart and just, you know, destroys everything that was hers because he just needs to feel alive. He needs to, you know, vent that aggression he has for her for leaving him. And you just see that echoed so well in this chapter. And I'm curious how much of that maybe even Dree, you know, got from reading this fic is that, you know, Penelope is just so angry at Percy for not being there. If he liked my hair, I'm getting rid of the hair. Because she feels just so empty inside that she just doesn't see herself even, you know, I think it's a two-part process. I think she's so angry at him for leaving, she's taking away what he loved about her, and she feels so unworthy of it, being someone who's left behind. And I think it's that second point I raised. I think it's that she feels so unworthy, you know, whereas she looked up to him, she doesn't feel as though she has it in herself to be as strong as he was. She's very insecure. She, uh, and, and let me just even say this, too. I love the way that their relationship is described. She can't understand how anyone w- couldn't like Percy. You know, everything he says seems perfectly natural. When he complains about <laughs> Arthur and Arthur's little quirks, she finds, you know, a little anecdote that goes along with it. And she, you, you just get the sense that this is someone who, honest to God, loved Percy Weasley during his bad times. Yeah. And that's well, even... She, she agreed with him. Like, she's another um, Rose, Privy Rose, you know? She, they, Privy well, Rose. Just, like... Well, like, they wouldn't even, like, go make out because it would have been breaking their own prefect rules, but they both agreed that uh, going into classrooms during their own free time was acceptable. <laughs> like, they both agreed that like, right. set times or set schedule. <laughs> okay, we'll make out at this point because it'll be all right. <laughs> oh, my God. 
it was a relationship that had so much depth to it that you can actually, you know, usually you picture, you know, Percy and his girlfriend and she's just like him and you just get the sense that no one could ever like these people. You love just even listening to, you know, Penny's thoughts on this. You just really feel for this character so much. She's someone that you yeah. instantly take a liking to. And this is someone who was in love with Percy Weasley. And I just credit A&Z so much for, for really fleshing out these characters. And, you know, just someone I was saying a moment ago, when they describe you know, Percy and how he turned away from the ministry and how Fudge was kind of off his rocker and demanding the impossible from him. Yeah. And he tells how Percy and Penny were working on the imprisonment charm and how they now hope to use that to detain the prisoners at Culperat. You know, she remembers being in Percy's flat and they're and they're working over the paperwork and they're trying to get this charm to work. And all of a sudden, you can just picture this too. And I, I cracked up laughing when I was reading this. You know, he just drops to the ground. He puts his head in her chest. He hugs her. I thought he was going to start bawling in any second. And he says, Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just such a weird, like, you can't, like, you can only imagine if, like, Fred and George were in the room, what would have happened. You know what I mean? Oh, dear but, Lord. But, um. No. <laughs> and, you know, he, he puts his head in her chest and says, you know, I'm not worthy of you. You know, I, I, I can never make it. I could never make it without you. He says, you know, I could never live without you. Will you marry me? And, yeah, well, you give me strength, would you consider marrying me? Right. Yeah. And then her response to that is, you know, thinking back on this, you know, nine months pregnant, can I make it without you? Without your strength, can I make it? And mm-hmm. it's just for a character to be able to look at Percy and to fully understand why he's a Gryffindor, where so many of us look at Percy and we go, why are you in Gryffindor again? It's just, this is someone, and, you know, if we're never here, she'd be talking about the ancillary characters that just so well describe, you know, the different points of view. These are the people who don't spend every moment with Ron, Hermione, you know, Ginny, and, you know, Harry, and they don't understand what these characters go through. These are just the ordinary people who have their own lives, who don't do, you know, the great things that maybe the trio and Ginny may do. And for her, Percy is extremely brave. To me, I think I found so much of Harry in Penelope. Really? So lost and so, and, and yet Jenny seems to be Harry's Mrs. Weasley. Do you know what I mean? Mrs. Weasley tries to eventually get Penelope out of her shell. Jenny's trying to get Harry out of his shell. Like, I think there was three sentences where Penelope's thinking and she goes, she tried not to think about raising the baby without him. She tried not to think about anything. Every thought seemed to hurt her more than the last one. I mean, those sentences right there, I think, describe Harry. He doesn't want to think about anything. So, I don't know. I thought there was a lot of similarities between the two of them, even though they're so different and they're not even friends, you know? So many of these characters in After the End are just like Harry. During the canon novels, we see Harry as, you know, the broken person who feels guilt for everything, who doesn't know how they're going to go on. And you see all the other support characters come in and just kind of, you know, pick him up and, you know, hold him up and help him get through it. And after the end, every character is in the same boat that Harry is. And you're right, mm-hmm. Penelope, you know, Mrs. Weasley, everybody, everybody, you know, is trying to figure out who they are and how they're going to go on. Just reading this, you feel as though Penelope's life is so empty. You have to realize, too, that she dated Percy for years. She heard the horror stories about the Weasleys. And now she is without Percy. She's with her in-laws, which usually isn't a pleasant thing in any situation. And they're all she has. And yeah. she feels like such a complete empty shell. And, you know, the chapter picks up from Molly's perspective downstairs. She, and I love the little, 
you know, nuances they add here. She's taken up model cooking to take her mind off the world. And she's, you know, making breakfast <laughs> and she's concerned about her unborn grandchild. And she yeah. feels such tremendous guilt. For Regret. The way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you feel for Mrs. Weasley, you feel for Molly, you understand Molly being upset that her first child to get married did so with, you know, just let, they just went and got married and, and you understand about her wanting to throw a wedding. Personally, I think that Molly overreacted. I think, I hate that she has the regret she does, but I think that she kind of was a bit ridiculous about it. I think she is right to regret it. Every time she looks at Penelope, you know, she's reminded of what she did and how stupid it was. While Molly did this with Percy and why she did this with Penelope and why she was the overbearing mother-in-law, you know, and, and, and mother figure and why she completely, you know, inserted herself into her you know, child's life, she's angry she didn't get the chance to do it with Fred and Angelina. So she feels yes. pity for it, but she's not applying that pity and she's not applying that regret to future yes. actions. You know what? Molly is the very strong little character who is going to butt her nose into all of her children's business. I'm their mother. That's my job. There's no changing that. There's no dealing with this woman. And she's going to love you to death, but you have to do it her way. And that's who Molly is. Like Ron, you know, with his temper to Draco, she cannot change that, but she can recognize that she does it. I just don't know if she really has the <laughs> capability to let her children go. I think that to get that effect from her, you have to kind of trick her into doing it, which is what you see from, you know, Remus later in this chapter. But yeah. I just want to talk yeah. about, you know, you have, you know, Molly furious at Ron and you have, you know, her, you know, bustling around her now empty house. All she has left to deal with is Penny and Penny comes down the stairs and she sits on the, on the bench and Molly knows that she doesn't have a great relationship with her. She knows that she once called yeah. her a Scarlet Woman, and she does regret that. And she's taken it upon herself that she is going to get Penny out of her shell. She is going to do what you know Percy can't do anymore. This is her mission. She doesn't have a lot left to do. She's raised her children. You know, right. she, she's gone well, into the war. Yeah, she's just now starting to realize that all of them are growing up and they're all fine. And she doesn't have to, she can devote her time and she wants to devote her time to Penelope because Penelope doesn't have anyone and neither does Molly anymore. So it's actually the perfect fit. Here's the thing. Molly's the mother of seven children. There was one child who got tortured and killed by Death Eaters. You know, probably mm -hmm. wishing his mother was there at the end, you know, to help him. And she probably yeah. feels tremendous guilt for, you know, not protecting one of her offspring and his unborn baby and wife were left behind she's gonna fix this and she owes well, it to percy and she's always been close to percy even in the canon she's always been close to percy and she yeah. sticks up for percy you know when when everyone else writes him off you know during the wedding she you know you can tell she's you know glaring at the twins to back off and she's always yeah. you know taking care of all of them and i love the moment where you know penny's at the table and she drops something in the floor and molly accios it and it's Percy's prefix badge. Oh, gosh. I about lost it. <laughs> I mean... I did. I, oh, I can't even... This makes me cry. Okay. Like, I'm serious. It's so sad. <laughs> and for her to have that, of all things, you know? Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, how, how often do you look at the prefect badge and you think of, like, the head boy badge that they turned into big head boy? And this is really all she has left 
of her husband. He was her anchor to the world. Uh-huh. And picture Harry without, you know, the, without Ron and Hermione or the Weasleys. You know, who would he be? And this is just someone in this alien place. She's not comfortable here. She doesn't know who she is. She has virtually nothing left. And Molly just grabs her and hugs her and tells her it'll be okay. And I don't think she believes that. I don't think she believes Molly. I don't well, of course think- she doesn't. How could she? Yeah, I don't think she has any faith in that. And, you know, Molly wants to take her to, you know, Lupin Lodge. She doesn't want to have anything to do with that. The thing with Molly is that when you look at different fanfics, they tend to write her in usually one way. They tend to write her as the overbearing, loving mother. And by that, I mean, when you step into her house, she is going to feed you incessantly. She is going to hug you a lot. She's going to support you a lot. She's never usually adversarial with you. Now, obviously she'll tell, she'll, you know, smack the twins in the back of the head every now and then, but she does it in a loving way. She's never adversarial with you as she is in this chapter, as she is, you know, with Ron, you know, she, she, you know, gets into Ron's face. Who can get in your face if not your mother? That's it. Do you know what I mean? No, I do. And I think so many writers leave that out. They don't have her as the in-your-face, you just want to scratch your eyes out sometime because you've had it with her. They, <laughs> they leave that part of her out, and they make her, you know, Molly Weasley. Who wouldn't love Molly Weasley? Everyone wants Molly Weasley as their mother-in-law. No, you don't. <laughs> Molly Weasley is not an easy woman. And Well, but she comes across that way, I think, to other people. Like, you go into her home, and she adopts you. It doesn't matter your age, unless you're older. You know, and then she tries to impress you, but but, you know, she is, when she, you go over there, you wish you belonged to that family. Then what I like about this story is it actually shows the other side of it, of when you actually are in her family. Exactly. And you go, oh. And that's the thing, too. I like that they make Molly a difficult woman. I like that they make yeah. her a difficult mother-in-law. I like that they make her a difficult mother. She is not an easy person to get along with. I love that the Minister of Magic whole three weeks after you know the collapse of the government and you know this massive crisis calls an emergency staff meeting with his children <laughs> to figure out how they're going to control molly i just that is molly weasley and i just i really love that they do See, that i guess i didn't get it so much as control her like that's not what the image that i got from when i read it i just got that they were trying to protect her from seeing it that Oh, she I didn't get that at all. Here. I thought they got the sense. Really? I thought, no, I got the sense they were protecting Ron from her. I thought they were going to put Ron in the witness protection program when Molly got a hold really? of the prop. Oh, I did. absolutely. I we, didn't. We yeah, have I read hour, that differently. Oh, we have an hour until she reads, you know, the Daily Prophet. We have to find some way to take care of this. I read that very differently. I read that that Molly's about to be in the war path, you know, and they have to find some way to deal with this. And you know, whatever it is, we need to, you know, we need to take care of this. And he calls the emergency staff meeting. I mean, and so perhaps you're right. I just didn't. I hadn't read it that way. I mean, you're, you're, the way you're saying it makes perfect sense. Zenya, you're listening. What do you think? You have my email address? <laughs> no. Which one were you thinking? <laughs> oh, Zenya, Zenya, Zenya is great. Zenya, just like every time I have a, a, a question, and I love it from the voicemail. She reads this in her car, so I'm picturing her with post-its, you know, as she's driving on the, on the highway. Just <laughs> well, I hope not. Drive safely. <laughs> oh, man. But um, so just to move on, so we get to uh, Lupin Lodge. And <laughs> oh, gosh. My mother, this is my mother. Really? I swear, it is my mother. Where you're just like, oh, I want to sleep in. And she's like, get up, it's chores day. Or, you know, why are you sleeping? 
Oh, I love that. So you have Ginny in the kitchen, and Molly just appears out of nowhere, and, and her first reaction is, you're not supposed to be here for three hours. What are you doing here? And you have, to, you have to love it. And she starts yelling, Ron! And then Ginny says, oh, she's sleeping, Mom. Okay. Ron! And I love that, too. She goes after Ginny for not being dressed like a proper witch. This is what we... And I love it. This is what, you know, we fought and died for in the war. And Ginny's like, to wear ropes? <laughs> like, I don't remember signing on for that. And, you know, and you have the scene where, you know, she's about to, you know, tear Ron a new one, and you just have to love the way that Ron handles his mother. He doesn't cower, almost like, you know, Fred when he tells Molly that he's engaged to Angelina. And and what I meant by control a few minutes ago is you really need to take a firm tact with Molly. You need to carefully Mm -hmm. approach her. You can't go over the top. Ron is going to be fine. Everything is going to be all right. My head is fine. Hermione took care of it. And I love when she says, well, when are you coming home? Well, I'm moving into a house with Harry. And I love Harry, you know, steps into the room and hears this and gets the impression that Ron came up with the, with this idea 10 seconds before. Yeah, well, obviously, but Harry's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> Whatever. And, yeah, and exactly. And then, well, how are you going to afford that? Well, I work in a pub and Harry's independently wealthy. And I love Jenny's <laughs> response. No, he's not. I don't care if he's the richest man in the world. Harry is not rich. That is not my Harry. Because you look at the guy, you never get the sense he has money. I mean, you know. But he does. Well, it's funny, too, because I have a friend of mine who's reading Prisoner of Azkaban for the first time, and her question was, why doesn't Harry buy his own firebolt? And my exact response was, I don't know. I don't think he knows he can. Like, it's just like, he doesn't know he has access to this money. Well, I don't, I think that's part of being a kid. You don't realize that you can take care of yourself until you're older. Yeah. I think that's part of growing up. Even when you're older, you you don't realize you can take care of yourself sometimes. Well, and when you do realize it, you go, oh. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like an idiot. (laughs) So, of course, now here's the thing. You have to picture Ron. Ron's had a bit of a day. And he walks down the stairs in his pajamas and Molly's screaming, Ron, wear your robe. There's women present. And, you know, his sister, it's his sister and his (laughs) girlfriend. And he's like, Ma, everything's fine. And you can tell he's even baiting Molly. Ma, I wear these to work. And her, I was waiting for someone to say, "What are you, Charlie? Like you wear pajamas to work?" Because maybe, oh, it's, maybe it's hereditary. So then, see, though, Ron knows he can get away with a lot of crap because he is the baby boy. I think. I think she has a soft spot for him because of that. And here's, the thing. I do. So here's the thing: she goes after Ron for fighting Draco, and this is exactly what he got incensed that he thought Hermione was doing. And I just love the quote. And how does your employer feel about this whole mess, fighting while you're at work? She crossed her arms and shook her head. It doesn't exactly look good to start your first week on the job this way, does it? Ginny saw Ron close his eyes and take a deep breath. She stifled a laugh. The situation wasn't funny at all, but she couldn't help wanting to warn her mother that if she didn't leave Ron alone, he might punch her as well. (laughs) I love that line. Like, um... You just want to yell out to Molly, um, you should see the last guy who took him on. You know, he's lying in St. Monkos. You sure you want to pursue this line of question? Well, I just think it's hysterical that, like, she knows he works at a bar. <laughs> and she's just like, your employer, blah, blah, blah. I'm and like, then she starts going after bar. him for working in the bar. You know, well, what do you want to do with your life? Well, I want to work. Oh, really? Where? At the bar where I am now. Oh. Well, I can understand her where she's coming from there. Well, it does. But the thing is, is that you have to realize, too, that, you know, from Ron's perspective, he's going through a lot of insecurity. You know, he feels like he's valueless. He feels like he can't do anything. It's a sore spot for him. So, and of course, Molly's always the very in-your-face, you know, type of person. But she's handling it in a very passive-aggressive way. You know, like, 
she asks, where are you going to work? He says a bar. And she, and her response is, oh, and what made you think that was a good idea? Like, it's just, you know, <laughs> and it's just like you want to, like, it, it, it's some opportunity slapper. So you have to love how the only person in this chapter, and this is why I consider myself, you know, modeled after, after the end Remus. Remus is able to broker deals here. And Remus is able to appeal to what drives Molly. Ron, you know, points to the fact that, you know, Ginny will be home soon. She can mother Ginny. And Molly's pleased with that. And Ginny mm-hmm. says that, I want to stay here. I want to stay at the Lupin Lodge. And, you know, Molly's face drops. And she's about to say no. You know she's about to say no. And Remus jumps in there and tells Molly, you know, that, you know, he's going to teach Hogwarts. And this is something that would help him very much. And you could tell that Molly doesn't like this idea at all. And she gets up and she's, you know, slamming the teapot down. And she says, well, whatever you want to do, Ginny, is fine with me. And I love that because there's a reference earlier in the chapter that Molly always says that, but she never means it. And she, well, yeah. It's it, it's it's face value. She doesn't mean it. Yeah. And I love the fact that Remus then tells Molly about the Wolfsbane potion. Mm-hmm. And he, he absorbs the full blame for letting Ginny do it, but Ginny did it, and it was incredible, and it was amazing. And it's something which is improving Remus's life dramatically, in which he please let her brilliant daughter stay with him and take care of him, and he will gladly give her an education. And then Ginny follows up with, she needs to go away to school. She can't be homeschooled. And Molly is just bursting with pride that she'll allow Ginny at this point to do whatever she wants, because she's just so proud of her. Yeah, yes. I love the reaction that Ginny has to that. Ginny almost starts tearing up, saying, I'll be home every week, and I can help you with the baby. And she neglects to point out that she could be home any week anyway. Maybe Dad could break the rules and let me take apparition lessons early. And Molly immediately tuts, oh, we can't have your father breaking the rules for you. And she completely redirects the conversation to where now, yes. you know, no matter if she wins or loses that one, she's got it. And Molly gave in. And Molly didn't give in and get pissed about it. Molly is happy to give in because she's just so proud of her daughter. Yes. I just want to point out this sentence. Ginny let herself clinch for just a moment, reveling in having won her battle. She caught eyes with Harry, who was half smiling at the two of them as though he was about to laugh. Like, at, you know, in reading that without that sentence, you actually start to believe Ginny. You, you believe what she's, what she's wheedling, if that, that's an actual word. I don't um, think it is, but it's okay. But you know, it's even the same thing too. Where <laughs> on some level, Jenny even believes. It. On some level, Jenny, you know, will be home, and, and you know, she does mean these things. But it's, you know, she's definitely saying it for the purpose of getting what she wants. But actually, keep going. Here's the thing: I love the fact that you know Ron <laughs> is just beating the tar out of Draco Malfoy. He's, you know, got all these issues with Hermione. He's got all of these problems. He's insecure. And I love the way he's written in this chapter. He's giving it to Molly. You know, he's standing toe-to-toe with Molly. He's giving it back to her. You know, I've survived war. I've I've been kidnapped. I've gone through all of this. I think I can take you. And I even love, you know, even beyond Ginny saying, you might want to back off, Mom. You know, he might slug you, too. Re- what What is Ron's response? Can you read it there? What is Ron's response to... To his mother after... After she's hugging Jenny and crying and so happy. Mom, said Ron, after his mother and sister collected themselves. I mastered four new sobering charms this week. Aren't you proud of me? And he held out his arms to his mother. <laughs> and I just love it. He's holding out his arms like, Ron needs a hug. I just thought that was so <laughs> And Molly just glares at him. Have you seen the Daily Prophet this morning? <laughs> and I love that. Like, like There's only so much you're going to get out of Molly in one day. But I just love the way they diffuse Molly. <laughs> and that could have gone very badly. And, you know, I, I just credit the writing of Remus and I credit, you know, just the way these characters work. This is why I read fan fiction. It was so well crafted and the characters were so true to themselves, but just 
it was such a joy to read this this one chapter here is is one of the reasons i love the story so much i totally agree and i just love jenny with molly like even the last sentence says Jenny let her mother fuss over her robes and hair as they prepared for September 1st. It just makes me feel for Jenny. Like, out of all the boys, Jenny is the one that's got to put up with Mrs. Weasley all the time. And it, it must just drive her nuts. And yet she loves her mother. She loves her mother. But, you know, it, the thing with Molly is you have to understand. Molly walks in the room and she's instantly going off about, you know, wear your robes. You know, you're a witch. We, we fought and died for the right to wear these robes. And Jenny's response is, no, we didn't. And, you know, she's, yeah. you know, screaming at Ron, how are you going to afford, you know, to, to live in a house? I work. I have a job. And you, you tell <laughs> Molly's statements are just, are, are just so far out there. You know, Ginny saying she wants to stay with Remus and Sirius during the school year. You can't live with men. I'm living with six men at home. You know, it's just like everything Molly says, you know, is not founded in reality, but it's founded in Molly Weasley. And that's all you have to deal with. So you can see how it's frustrating. But you love the woman so much at the same time. I know. So would you want Molly Weasley to be your mother-in-law? Um, yeah, probably. Okay. I'd rather have a, a mother-in-law who overcares than undercares. That, that's fair enough. You know, my, my incoming mother-in-law is, is pretty cool herself, and I like her a lot. Although, you know, I'm, I'm a little grateful that she doesn't have, you know, Molly Weasley's ability to, like, you know, chase you down in your car, you know, drag you out to the street and drag you home with her if she's upset with you. So that's something I'm glad I'm, I'm missing out on. Well, I feel the need to point this out, that when we were talking in the forums, we were talking about what characters were more alike and things mm-hmm. like that. And I had said Mrs. Weasley. And I just want to point out that th- that aspect of Mrs. Weasley about pushing everybody and kind of being on, on everybody's business type thing, I don't resemble that part of Mrs. Weasley. I resemble more of the Mrs. We- Mrs. Weasley in front of company. <laughs> are you sure are you sure about that? I think I have tendencies to be like Mrs. Weasley as in well did you brush your teeth did you blah 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 okay. to everybody? But I don't think I'm quite as overbearing as she is. We'll have a one on one interview with Jen's husband in the next edition oh. of Perfect Weekly. Let's talk about the wedding. Sigh. <laughs> did you like this chapter, Jen? You know how you said last chapter was your favorite chapter? Uh-huh. This is probably my favorite chapter. Jen, take it away. Well, it starts off with Lavender and Seamus getting married on the sandy banks of Hogwarts Lake in the middle of the summer or whatever time this is. That would, it would be <laughs> sept- it's September 1st, I believe. September 1st. The leaves are blowing. It's gorgeous. And it's the leaves are blowing? But yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> this is the same lake, by the way, that was drained by the by the Dementors in J.C. Penny shopping Voldemort, you know, back in fifth year. So it's nice to know that you know we can have some good times by the lake too. <laughs> I actually really like the Lavender and Seamus couple. I really do too, for the same reason that Rena does. I like when you take. It's here's the thing, and this is one of the things I love about the universe. I love the fact that there are more people at Hogwarts than the trio and Ginny. In Draco, I love the fact mm-hmm. that some of these characters have lives, and you really get the sense that there's a whole world out there beyond just those five or six people. And Lavender and Seamus are real people who love each other, who've been around all this time. As we've been reading all these books, you know, they're off doing their own thing, and they've been there this entire time, and they're you know real people. And it's and it's so hard for me too because when I read the chapters, I always picture the um, I can't think of his name, the actor who plays Seamus in the movies. 
And if you've listened to the commentaries, uh, Danielle and I did on the movies, the actor was like four feet tall, like in the first movie. So every time I picture him, like I was actually picturing him dancing with lavender, like on stilts. Like it's just like, it's, it's so bad, but. He's just a poor, a wee little Irish fellow. He is. <laughs> I will say that I like how they did lavender because, and I want to say this, I really like how they don't make lavender a bimbo slut. Mm -hmm. I've read so many fics where she is just ridiculous, like just a very scarlet woman, to say it nicely. (laughs) And do you know what I mean? She is portrayed that way a lot. And I really like how, although she's somewhat still a bit ditzy and still a bit, you know, clothes and hair and boys oriented. She seems like a genuinely nice person in this. Well, you when, like her. Well, like even when we say she's into clothes and, you know, makeup and all that stuff, she's, you know, 17 years old. I mean, you know, there are still certain types of girls. And she's definitely one of those types. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. You get the sense that these are two people who are deeply in love with each other, who have had this entire relationship in the background, in the other room, the entire time that Ron and Hermione and, and Harry have been, you know, at Hogwarts. Yeah. They've been having this entire relationship in the background, and it just it adds to the realism of this universe, that there are real people here going on with their lives. And uh, let's talk about the, the three broomsticks. They get married, and one of the things I really yeah. love is that you get the sense Dean Thomas is Seamus's best friend, and he's been there this whole yeah. time. You know, when we get Dean Thomas in fanfic or in the canon, he's the background character who has three lines. And... <laughs> Some of these characters, like, I don't actually visualize them as they are in the movies. Like, like Dean Thomas is black. Seamus, obviously, is Irish, but I don't think I ever associated Seamus with actually being an Irish person. You didn't associate Seamus with being an Irish person? Well, because I thought it was Seamus for the longest <laughs> time. It did! Like, <laughs> I did, too. That's fair. I knew did he was. Really? Uh, I did too, but I knew he was. Um, I knew he was. I knew he was Irish. Seriously. So when I found out that he was Irish, I was just like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, <laughs> kept going on, but I thought that was interesting. Okay, but going on, I really love how Ginny and Hermione are sitting there talking about Madame Rosmerta's age, and that Madame Rosmerta is obviously listening to them. And there's one particular line that just kills me where Jenny goes, how old do you think she is? And then she goes, well, I hope I look as good when I'm her age, whatever it is. She said approvingly. And Madame Rose Murda shot her a sudden proud smile. I just love that line. I think it's hysterical. I've actually read some fics recently, and I think you're actually reading one of them now, that writes Madame Rose Murda is almost a very angry, bigoted woman. I don't know where they get that from in the canon, but some authors actually take a very harsh approach to her. I really, really liked her uh, in this fic. I, and I just actually loved that moment very much because I thought it really showed the differences between Hermione and Ginny. Hermione was scandalized that Rosemarda overheard them talking you know, about her. And Ginny's yeah. response is, well, good. I was complimenting her. I'm glad she heard that. And it's just like the difference is, you, yeah. know, you know, Hermione is so much more reserved than Ginny is. But, you know, I, I one of the things I really loved about Madame Rose Murda is, I believe, isn't she off with George throughout most of the scene? Yes. <laughs> As we <laughs> joked. Like, George has been like, hey, baby. <laughs> and they got off together. And Rose Murda's like, Ron, watch the bar. I'll be back in an hour. And it's just, <laughs> I know. She's like, oh, you tin bar? Okay, I Go and get some. 
and then and you know what? Here's the thing with with George. You look through all of these various ships. You never think George was murdered, but you know what? I just thought it, it was works. Great. And I love the fact that he shows up later and goes out and smokes a squirm. I don't know what that is, but apparently. No, you're kidding. It yeah, wasn't a cigarette. They call the squirm, but it, it's kind of like in the earlier chapter where Charlie goes back to the flat with Nick, and they're you know they're smoking up something else, and it's not you know. Like, <laughs> Maybe it's like weed or something. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that with George, and I and I, I just love the interaction too with George growing the goatee. And, you know, Fred says, well, I might as well do it. If it looks good on him, it looks good on me. And, you know, Angelina yeah. essentially puts the fear of God into him. Oh, gosh. She's like, yeah, I know a good hair removing charm. We'll just, you just try it. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, while we're on the ancillary characters, I love that when you see Ron up the bar with Rosemurda and you hear, hi, Miss Rosie, and you turn around and it's Mick. And my first question was, do you think he calls all women Miss Rosie? Oh, Miss Rosie? Yeah. No, I think he's just a flirt. So he flirts with Madame Rosmurda, and Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown shows up. And I love the comment where, you know, he's Seamus's cousin, and she's Lavender's sister. And, and they don't know. <laughs> and they don't know. And my question is, are they related now? <laughs> Granted, everyone in the Wizarding World is related, but it's like, it, it, it's basically like dating your cousin's, you know, sister-in-law. Like our family? Yeah, it's dating your cousin's sister-in-law. Is that is that allowed? Can you do that? Can you in date Arkansas? Your- it- <laughs> <laughs> and I can say that because I actually am from Arkansas. Okay. Well, I'm from Massachusetts. You frowned upon that here, but you know whatever. I love the point where Nick tells Secretary Privy Rosegate Brown that he needs to talk to her about urgent business concerning the ministry, and her first reaction is. Well, I don't have my clipboard with me, but... Yes, <laughs> and sure. They, and they go into the back alleyway, and he slams the door shut, and you're just like, sucker. Yeah, just like, yeah. I just love that moment, too, where it's just... Were Ron and any of them even in this chapter? I can't remember. I was I was so attached to George and Rosemurda and you know, Mick and the secretary, and I wasn't paying attention. Were the other characters actually in this chapter, Jen? Yes, they absolutely were. In fact, one of my favorite things is near the beginning of the chapter where Ron and Hermione have been fighting, you know, and then all of a sudden Ron goes up there and he just like holds out a hand and he's like, dance with me. He says simply, mm-hmm. you know, and, and she immediately just goes into him and it's just romantic. He really clings to her, too. He's so afraid. Now, you saw, you know, the morning after, he's joking with Molly, he's joking with everybody, with his mother, uh, with Ginny, you know, with Harry and everybody. You, you see him putting his best face on what's happening. You know, it's four days later, it's sunk in. You know, he could get sued by Draco Malfoy, and he could lose everything. And it really hits him. He's clinging to Hermione as they're dancing. You know, the the, the fight's over. You know, she's going, that's fine. He's really just, he's clinging to Hermione. He needs her so badly at this point. Harry's off in the corner. He has a very blank expression on his face. He looks very defeated when, you know, Neville shows up and dances with Ginny. And I could tell that, you know, Julie, you know, from the forums, who's the Oh, gosh. Neville fangirl has a few thoughts on that. Um, How much did you love Harry staring at Ginny from across the room? I loved it, and it it wasn't like an like an angry jealousy. It oh, wasn't. No. It, it was almost like a defeated. You know, why am I here? I don't know where I where I am. You know. What oh no, I didn't get that at all. What did you get from it? Maybe I'm just phrasing it poorly. What did you get from it? Oh, I just got that he was just watching her. You know, like when you really start liking a person, and it kind of doesn't matter what they do, you just want to watch them and see how they 
are. Let me read. Let me. Rephrase. Does that make sense? No, it does. I, I think he was very uncomfortable where he was. He was very, you know, obviously he was he was a little bit jealous of Neville. But he didn't really let it show in his outward appearance. He just had this very yes. squirmy kind of, you know, uh, kind of um, you know feeling to him. You know, as he's you know sitting here with everybody. So you have the toast, and you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dean get up there and toast Seamus and just talk about how Lavender, you know, jumped up and defended him when the Death Eaters were about to kill him and just how strong the love is between these two characters. And you have Parvati get up there and make the comment that, you know, if Lavender can just lay back and, you know, look bored for a while, that'll basically be her wedding night. <laughs> it took me like three weeks to get it. Oh, Jen, you didn't know why everyone was laughing? When I read it, I don't think that I didn't necessarily get it, but I didn't actually think that that kind of innuendo would be in this story, and so it shocked me a little bit. So you had to like go back and read it again and be like, did they just say what I think they just said? Yeah, exactly. I was like, what on earth? And I love Fabulous Jin- writing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just have to love that Ginny's response. Like, Ginny like, looks to Molly, like, I can't believe someone just said that in front of my mother. Because, <laughs> of course, the mother, the, mother of, the, the mother of seven children has never had that come up before. Exactly, like she doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, I thought that or was appreciate it. I thought that was a great moment, and I love to. Um, you have uh, a little bit later. You have Eloise and Colin there, and uh, you know they're at, she's asking Lavender about her relationship with Seamus and how they you know met each other and how he proposed. And they were down in the you know the Herbology greenhouse, and Ginny makes it like a little mental note to herself that you know I wonder what they were doing down in the Herbology greenhouse. We were just looking at plants. That, yeah, exactly. And I've read many fics with you know Lavender and Seamus where they do anything but just look at plants. And exactly. Exactly. And you know he proposes and says you know he doesn't want to go. You know he won't you know end the year with you know the two of them not being together and. Uh, you know, it's just, I love the, I love Eloise too during this. Cause at one point she puts down like her pen, like she forgets she's like taking notes. She's like, really? Like, like, like two and girlfriends. She sniffles. And she sniffles. It doesn't Colin take a picture of her. Colin thinks she looks a- so cute. He takes a picture of her and then like has to apologize and cover himself to say like his finger slipped or something. Cause you can tell. <laughs> Col- it's not, it was something like that. Like, Oh, sorry. Thing just went off like that. My apologies. And you could tell too that, you know, he just really, you know, is smitten for, uh, for Eloise there. And, oh, yes. And it's just a, such a great moment. So, of course, Eloise uh, and Colin join Ron and Ginny up at the bar, and they say that they met up with Draco Malfoy at uh, oh, yeah. St. Mungo's, and that he's really fine. It's just like the time he got bit by the hippogriff. You know, he's, yes. he's really over-exaggerating, and he's going to be okay. And you just see, you know, you just see, you know, Ron, the, like the relief pour over Ron, and he has to go tell, you know, Hermione. Okay. Yeah. Can I just say where did Hermione go? Because they were dancing romantically, and then the next thing we know, Ron is going out, walking up to the bar, and suddenly becoming bartender. Like, was he going to get them drinks? Has she been waiting all this time? For <laughs> Hermione's been waiting back? for an hour and a half. Well, she was talking to Neville and to Professor Oh, Monica, I guess so. I he, she was okay. talking to them. Or, yeah, that's funny. Does anyone know where Ron went? And, um... <laughs> I love it, Jen's mind. She's like, she actually has the entire, you know, the floor plan of the place and she's tracking all the characters. Um, and she's wondering, <laughs> why are Rosemartha and George, but why have they been in the basement for half an hour? Um, <laughs> what are they doing? What are well, they smoking? Maybe what? We should, maybe we should go knock on the door and see if they're okay. Um, Madame Rosemartha, the local drug dealer. <laughs> um, I, I think they're doing other things down there. Yeah. Yeah. 
I believe you're right. All right. And um, he loves her. They're going to get married. Maybe. And I or they could just live in sin. <laughs> I, I, I think it's going to be the former. I, well, you know what it is. It's like I it's kind of like growing up as George Weasley. You've always had a thing for the local barkeep, and I don't know. But well, I for the older woman, for the older, for the for the very older woman, she's apparently seventy five years old. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> bad mental picture, Rockin'. Like, it's like George bad. George ships Professor McGonagall. But um, you know, oh good gracious, that is just disturbing. My apologies to the Phelps twins and Maggie Smith for that unfortunate display of. Uh, <laughs> dark humor. So, of course, you know, Jenny goes off and gets Hermione, and you just see Hermione, you, you grab Ron in the bear hug, she's so relieved, he's so relieved, and you just sense that everything might be okay for a while. And then Jenny is tapped on the shoulder by Harry, who wants to dance with her. And Jen, oh, take it away. I can't. I'm just sitting here going, oh. You're verklempt? Okay. So, of course... Verklempt. Yes. I'm so verklempt. So they start they start dancing, and I love the moment. Harry, you know, is dancing. He looks uncomfortable. Ginny's uncomfortable. They're touching each other, and there's just so much of a sense of what these two characters have been through together. What they don't say with words, that they show with touches and with affection. And she asks Harry if he's having a good time. He says no. He says Hogwarts. And she says it will be rebuilt. And this is what I was talking about uh, during the discussion of um, the death of Dumbledore. I thought that scene was very over the top. This scene shows why that scene was a little bit over the top. You know, he, all he has to say is Hogwarts. All she has to say is yeah. it will be rebuilt. Simple declarative sentences. This is all you need to be saying because there's these characters get it. These characters know each other. You don't have to say a lot. You know, Harry, you know, if Ron's having a bad day, can just go and sit next to him and not say a word. And that means everything. Where, when he said Hogwarts, he was remembering all the bad things that he wasn't ready to think about yet. Well, Just think- being there pains him. And she's saying, it's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be different someday. Don't worry about it. But it hurts him to be there. It well, hurts I, him to see it. I get that. Well, I sense that, you know, it hurts him to see the school destroyed. And I think it hurts him just to, to be back where the final battle was, to be back. Essentially, you know, these characters got three months away from this torturous experience, and now they're right back where everything happened. And it's going to be so jarring to be there and to see the school in such a state of disrepair, but it will be rebuilt. Things will be okay. But I get what you're saying. Even if things are rebuilt and even if things are okay, it's still going to be this place where such wonderful but such awful things happened. And it's a roller coaster ride. To go back into that school, it's a roller coaster ride. Right. And then you have Harry asking about the vows. Yes. Take oh, my gosh. I'm just... <laughs> Take it away, Jen. Oh, myself. Arabella and Zinya, thank you for writing this scene. It, just a girl's, you know, best dream ever. You know, where... Where he is asking, you know, he's like, How, what did you think of the vows? And she said, you know, I, I wouldn't have done it like that or, you know, or, or something. Or he goes, would you have done it like that? Which I think is very interesting that he's asking her this kind of question. Like, for as stumped as he is to her reply... You know, I would be stumped that he would be asking. Well, I loved that her. Question. I loved her her nonverbal response to that. I I vowed to die for you, and I 
was about to die for you. What else could I possibly say in a vow? Exactly. That, and I thought that was just such a profound, very articulate response. And I just thought that was so beautifully written. And I loved what she said next. I would have promised to outlive you. I know, and Harry just completely freezes. And, and, it's, and it's, so, it's so important on two levels, because number one, his greatest fear is that everyone will die because of him. She would promise to outlast him, to take his greatest fears away. And yes. of course she slips and says, you know, I would marry you, which is the thing that we've you know, acted on, but we've never said it since I said out loud to you, I loved you. We've never talked about this. And I love... Two things. I love Jenny's reaction. She runs for it. Well, before we get to that, I just want to say that you're completely right in both both ways, the, that this is the first time that she says, I and you. She obviously knows that they're going to end up together. She believes it in her heart. He's hers. She's his. It's never been verbally said, really, except from the, I'll die for you, Harry. You know, yeah. uh, I love you. But he's and the other part, the other part where she just said the one thing he has wanted to hear since day one. Do you know what I mean? I, w I would have promised to outlive you. Yeah. I mean, that must, I mean, that puts a punch in my stomach. Oh, and it, he's like, you, what do you? <laughs> it, you know, it did in mine too. And I just want to take it back just a little bit of a notch here. Look at what we were talking about last episode. You have yeah. Remus becoming the wolf and everybody knows it happens and everybody gets what is involved in being a werewolf but nobody will ever talk about it because if you don't talk about it it's not there and it just gets to be the giant elephant in the room or the story i told about my aunt with cancer you know i knew she had cancer she knew i knew she had cancer but i was supposed to say that she had cancer because that meant mm -hmm. it wasn't really there you know, there is no way harry is that dense that he doesn't know that jenny loves him it's, it was proven, it was factually proven yes. through, you know, the flashback we're about to get that, you know, you know, the, the, the spell worked, you know, Expector of Sacrificum worked and Voldemort was killed. So Ginny must love him. It's, it's a fact. You can't deny that. But, you know, they've never talked about it. They have never sat down and, you know, in the three months since then, they have never breathed a word of that day they don't talk about it they both know they're dealing with it they both know that each other that each of them has these feelings by saying that was the first time it was addressed it was the first time someone said hey look at the elephant in the corner and they're both stunned and humiliated by it that's what i think is so interesting yeah. I, love uh, that, I, I just i love that this chapter is from Ginny's perspective because i think it's a new slant on that usually you have harry's perspective and you know the other character says the thing and runs for it and you have the hero following her out he's just standing there gaping at her and yeah. i'm going oh gosh harry go after her go after her go after her yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and you hope he'll do it but i love that it's not the story of what will harry do it's the story of why is Ginny running and she runs to hogwarts yes and she runs yes. over and i i just love you know the characterization of it. She is so like every other character in this fic, every character on some level is justified in what they're saying, but they're all yeah. angry that it has to be this way. And they're angry yeah. that, you know, it couldn't be as easy as anyone else. Lavender loves Seamus, but she hasn't loved him for as long as Jenny has loved Harry. But Lavender gets to express it. Lavender gets a beautiful wedding and she gets to, you know, openly acknowledge it with friends. Jenny doesn't get that. And, you know, you've seen Ginny in previous chapters ask, why do I wait around? Why do I do this? 
but she always does. Yes. And you know what? It, it's 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 Ginny's moment where you know she's a Weasley, and I just love the similarities. You know, when Ron's pissed, he charges through the forest. When Ginny's pissed, she charges to the school, and you're just waiting for you know Ginny to just like punch her hand through a tree or something. And you know she gets to Hogwarts and she walks over the very spot that Voldemort was killed. Yes, and she feels something. She feels something, and she you know writes it off to it just being you know that particular spot. And I found it interesting that Harry was actually watching this from the bottom of the from, from well, the, bottom of the bottom of the grounds, and just thinks that maybe yeah. you know, she was just you know didn't know where to go, or was confused, or you know, or was just well, emotional. No, I, I totally agree. I want to say though that it wasn't just a feel; that it felt like a very solid, cold barrier. Yes, and she almost stumbled backwards from its force. I think this is very important that it's put there for a reason. They do yes. this. They put these things in here for a reason. Don't miss them. Yes, don't miss the invisible brick wall. Why would she feel this, you know? Yeah. And you kind of go, what? And then you just go, oh, well, you know, keep going. And you forget about it. Exactly. It's really important. One, one would hope so. I really want to talk about the flashback. You have Voldemort you know, proudly standing on the grounds of Hogwarts, on the grounds of the school. You have Hermione fighting off, you know, younger Death Eaters, probably students. And you have, you know, Ron badly hurt. You have uh, Remus under an imprisonment charm. You have Sirius fighting Mr. Lestrange. I, I like this, too, because it's pre-Order of the Phoenix. It's Mr. and Mrs. Lestrange, how they're always referred to. That It's never Beldrix or... Yes. Um, and it's actually Mr. Lestrange is, you know, is the main Lestrange that you deal with. It's not Bellatrix at all. Um, and yeah. <laughs> I just found that interesting. Um, and you have Harry about to die. Voldemort, you know, Expelliarmus is his wand. And Harry says, you know, if, if I fall here, someone else will beat you. And Ginny is struck by the fact that this sounds like someone, you know, acknowledging they're about to die. And you see, you know, Hermione make it to Harry. You see Ron force himself up. You see Remus beat the charm. Uh, you, see, you see Padfoot about to be killed by Mr. Lestrange, you know, you know, charging up. Okay. And you see Ginny, and everyone dives in front of Harry. And Harry tries to push them all away, but they won't hear of it. This is it. They're going to die for Harry. Now, at this point, yes. the spell has already failed. The spell did not work. They fought, He fired Expecto Sacrificum. Nothing happened. But the minute they... Activated. Are, the minute they, yeah, the minute they say we will die for you, and they prove it, it's not just oh, you know, I die for my kids. It's not you know, I die for my, you know, for my wife. When you prove it, when you step in front of that gun and the gun is fired, when you prove that you will do it, you know, you defeat. You know, Voldemort is defeated. I thought that was done so fabulously because they say that you can't do spells unless you mean them and you feel them. Right. I love how they incorporated that in there, that they had to act it out rather than just feel it. Or Do you know what I mean? That was a question I had before. There was a reference to uh, when Ginny agreed to do it right away and to when Harry asked, do I have to feel the same thing for Ginny for it to work? And they said, no, I, I was... I couldn't remember how the spell actually worked. Did they just have to agree to mean it, or did they have to prove it? And I just, I love the fact that they had to prove it, and that they all would prove it. They were all ready to die for Harry. We don't care what happens to the Wizarding World. We don't care what happens to, um, to, 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 to Hogwarts. You know, it's what Hermione says in Prisoner of Azkaban. If you're going to kill Harry, you're going to kill us too. 
Right. You know, one of the best scenes, you know, Jenny charges, you know, up to the fat lady, and the fat lady, you know, with her painted eyes, you know, takes pity on her and takes pity on Harry, who yes. has arrived, and lets them into the common room. I just want to say what the fat lady says. She goes, it's against my rules. You're no longer a resident of Gryffindor. And, and Jenny goes, but I should be. I miss it, and I need to see it. And it, you just are reminded yet again. Well, it of should what be her Jenny, seventh year. It should be her seventh year. She should be right. a resident of Gryffindor. But just like the constant reminder that, oh, yeah, Jenny is not getting to do what normal kids do. She's actually having to do something else. She got gypped out of her last year at Hogwarts. She got gypped out of it. And I like that they keep reminding us. And you kind of go, oh, yeah. You know, when you read it, oh, yeah. And it's even that much worse. Yeah. And they go into the common room and, you know, they stand by the bay window and they look out over Hagrid's old hut. And, you know, Harry is standing right up to Jimmy's neck. She can feel his breath on her neck. Ugh. It was a rich, wonderful, dusty smell. Old books and chess sets and late night fires, muddy broom tails and victory parties, the tang of bursting Christmas crackers, the sour of spilled potions and the wetness of old uniform cloaks, all heavy with the damp of holiday snowball fights. The smell was so full of memories that it was nearly unbearable. It overwhelmed Ginny and threatened to make her cry. But there was a feeling in the air that kept her steady, a bracing quality that seemed to reverberate from the flagstones and weave itself into the tapestries, a lingering energy that Ginny knew deep in her bones. The common rooms rang with a thousand years of courage. For Harry, this place, Hogwarts, because of Voldemort, represents both everything he loves in the world and everything he hates in it. Hogwarts has actually been tainted by what happened there to him. And is it home anymore? Is it the place he feels like he belongs in anymore? I think it's now the Lupin Lodge. I think when Harry spent you know, his last time at Hogwarts, and when he had difficulty leaving before, he did so, but he made a clean break. His home is with his family. It's not the building anymore. He can't stand being there because of the reminders. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm just sitting here sniffling. <laughs> Very emotional moment for you. <laughs> oh my, how is it not for you? How can you read that and not feel emotional? Perhaps I was verklempt myself, you never know. He just kind of grabs around backwards, around the back. Right. I love it, and she's shocked, and... <sighs> and uh, and they kind of settle on the, on the love seat, and you know she, he's below her, and she knows that she can't push it, or the moment will end, and she doesn't want to below end. her. I thought he was behind her. He's behind her, but then they sit, so you get the sense that he's sitting and she's sitting, and she's kind of laying on his chest. Yeah, and he yeah. doesn't want to move, and she doesn't want to move, and whatever you do, you don't want to mess with this moment because this moment might not yeah. come again. And it's just such a it's just such a powerful moment with just these two characters and how yes. if they leave this place, you know, they're going to leave differently than they came. The truth is out now. It's been acknowledged. There's something between these two. He's holding Ginny and he can only open up to her if she's facing away at this point. He's so uncomfortable and not used to it. I love that how they wrote it where it wasn't Ginny facing him. It was her to, you know, her back to him and, he finally opens up about Hermione, and you finally get the first viewpoint of how Harry actually feels about Hermione going away, and what is Ron going to do, and yeah. if he's going to lose Ron. You just realize like how much despair Harry is actually feeling over all of this, and he's kept it inside, and yeah. because you know it's been about Ron, it's been about Hermione, and Harry has just kind of been over there in the other room, and. Uh, yeah, and you finally realize what an impact it's making on it on him, 
and you know this started off being about Jenny and and then it's about Harry and and then she plays you know it she wants comfort but instead of him yes he holds her but she gets her comfort through comforting him i think yeah, which i think describes describes Jenny as a whole that's I wanted to say that. No, that's a really great moment too. That's a really good, great point too. And I was very careful when I read this. I wanted to understand where the characters were and how they were sitting and what they were looking at. And that did jump out at me. The fact that they don't look at each other. They kind of hold yeah. each other, but they look away and they're looking out at the common room and they're looking out at their memories. And yeah, the only time we've had, you know, Harry dealing with Hermione in this fix so far has been from Hermione's perspective. And it's been with Harry being very, you know, open towards her, being very supportive. You need to go off. You need to go you know, to become a thinker and, you know, there, there, you know, let there be no question about that. And you have now, you know, Harry dealing with Harry opening up to Ginny about what's happening. You know, Ron might go to jail. Hermione's leaving. This is his family. And Ainsley does do such a great job of not making this the quartet. Ginny is not part of the trio, nor does she pretend to be, nor is she, you know, desired to be, you know, part of this trio. This is Harry, Ron, Hermione. It's always been them. It's always will be. And they're hurting and, you know, Hermione is leaving and Ron is in trouble and Harry just, he he feels that. And Ginny gets that she's the only one he can talk to and she's glad to do that. She's glad that that's her role. She's the one person Harry can talk to because he can't talk to Ron and he can't talk to Hermione. They're best friends, but he's never talked to them well. He screamed at them pretty good, but he's never, you know, opened up and just talked to them well. They're always the ones who have to open up and talk to him and pull it out of him. He doesn't just, you know, turn the faucet on. He will do that through Ginny and she's so grateful that she gets to play that role. Well, she understands the trio's relationship, but she's happy because she has her own relationship with each of the characters, and that's good enough for her. I mean, she's happy with it. And well, doesn't he almost kiss her on the neck or something? He does kiss her on the neck numerous times. I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want to set you off. He kisses her on the <gasps> neck numerous times. Am I that bad? Kisses her on the neck numerous times, my friend. Yes. And I love that he kisses her on the neck. Like, what? Just kiss her. But he doesn't. And it's just so sweet that he doesn't. Are you keeping a list here so far? We have neck, cheek. Well, we have both of them. Both of them have kissed the other on the cheek so far. And now this is the neck. And while all the while, Ron and Hermione are groping at each other on a tree. I don't, We're going to get to that in a moment. But um, I got some questions about that. So, of course, they leave. Okay, but then Dobby, like, ruins everything. <laughs> No, it's the last time this happened, you know, Ron and Hermione were banging on the door during their first moment. And now Dobby, yeah, now Dobby shows up. Ron and Harry, yeah. Yeah, and now Dobby, and I've never hated Dobby, really. And I hated him. <laughs> That's so bad. How can you hate Dobby? He's so cute. He's Because they would have kissed. He's like a smurf. How can you hate Dobby? I just wanted to kick him. I'm uh, sorry. You want to? You I, can't <laughs> kick Doggy. It's like kicking. It's like kicking a little Maltese dog. You can't kick Dobby. Uh, you know, oh, are you telling me that you liked Dobby showing up in the middle of this great scene? He didn't mean any harm. He was probably oh, doing the quit doing the underdog thing. I know that you were upset that he showed up. Oh God! So then Dobby shows up. <laughs> Jen throws the everything. Uh, Kick him. Kick him. <laughs> you can't, oh, God. You can't. No, no. I, I refuse to allow you to kick Dobby on my show. No, you can't kick Dobby. 
I do. I liked I liked Dobby, but oh, oh. I know the audience is going to agree with me. Ugh, Dobby, bad timing. I know they will, too. Do you even want to talk about anything Dobby has to say, or do you want to just get away from it? No, I'm just angry. All Bye, right. Dobby. It's all foreshadowing. If you want to read what Dobby says, it's all foreshadowing. But I do. I just do love the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, he walks up and he grabs Harry by the leg and is just hugging him. And all I could think of is, like, he's like a little dog humping Harry's leg. But he just grabs <laughs> Harry by the leg and is hugging him. And he looks at him and he's like, Harry Potter has grown. Like, your head wasn't that far away the last time I did this. It's just like, it was a... My gosh. Okay, we're gonna... I'm surprised he didn't call Jenny, like, Mrs. Harry Potter or something. Harry Potter's miss, or I love I love Melinda Leo's take on that Harry Potter and his wheezy. Yes, it is wheezy. I love that. We'll get to her next, I promise. But um, all right. So they right. so they hand in hand after bidding Dobby a fond farewell, which makes Jen do cry. <laughs> okay, later. Uh, they make their way hand in hand back to uh, Hogsmeade, and Jenny remarks that the trip has never taken you know so little time and they're back at the three broomsticks and they're about to have another major revelation and I thought it was the door opens and you see a pair of brown eyes look out I thought it was Hermione because Hermione have you noticed in the canyon or in the fix always is the person to walk in on people yes it's because that's how she stays so intelligent she just keeps walking into everybody and everything She and that's how she knows everything's going on no one yeah. talks to her she just <laughs> runs into it no, I have to ask, did you want to, now we, we discovered it's George here. Did you want to kick George? Oh, gosh. Well. <laughs> I'm picturing Jen running around the Wizarding World just kicking random people for no apparent <laughs> No, seriously. No, I think I was even angrier at George here than I was at Dobby. Like, I don't think kick is nice enough. And then he doesn't go away. He doesn't even get the hint. He he's, just stays he's, there. And- he's smoking his squirm. His squirm. <laughs> what is a squirm? I don't know. Arabella and Sinya. What will, is it? But if you will know this, uh, Ginny and Harry go back into the three broomsticks and Rose Mother's back. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, because George is obviously not with her. She's rather chipper. So she has to go somewhere. Yeah, she's got a, a pop on her step. She, yeah, yep. she. <laughs> drinks on the house for everybody. That was an odd little reference. I wasn't really sure what happened there. But, um, hmm. I, and I really like the writing here that Harry goes over to Ron and Hermione, who are still, you know, basking in the joy that Draco Malfoy does not have a serious head injury, which you've never seen before, you know, at any point. Yes. In fan yes. They're excited and they're having a party over this. But she recognizes this is, <laughs> this is a moment for the trio. And she recognizes that. Yeah. I thought she... that was so sad. Isn't what? this where they have, like, the cro- What? I didn't think it was sad. I thought, because you always, you asked before in previous episodes, where's Ginny during all this? What's Ginny doing? Yeah. I think that Ginny gets the fact that they have a special bond. She doesn't think it should be messed with. She's, like you said, part of each of these characters in a different way. Yeah. But what does Ginny do? She needs her she mom. She goes to her mom. And as much as you, you want to smack Molly around a little bit, Ginny needs her mom, and she's had a very tough day, and she goes over, puts her head on her mother's shoulder, and I love Molly. She's trying to set George up with all of these people, and she's like, how about that girl over there? Oh, no, wait, she has a baby. Maybe not her. How about that Yeah, person? not her. <laughs> and I felt like saying, Molly, if you only knew the half of it. But um, And there's a moment where Harry looks over at Ginny, 
and she kind of does the, the, you know, the head in her hands thing saying she's tired. And he looks over at Ron and Hermione and he mouths, do you want me to go with you? And she says no. And he goes back with Ron and Hermione. And it's how to say but a wait, lot. Wait, does it, go ahead. doesn't Molly, doesn't she say Harry's staring at you or he's looking at you? She does. And that's how she looks out. Yeah. This is, I think every mother and every daughter have a moment like this at some point where the daughter just craves the mom to just be a mom for a few minutes and rub her hair and, you know, just hold her for a minute. It's such and a I cute love moment. That- she rubs the hair off her forehead and she kisses her on the forehead and she's such, and this isn't the Molly Weasley, you know, who, you know, you know, puts the fear of God into you. This is just, this is Molly. This is, this is Ginny's Molly. This is Ginny's Molly, and it's just such yeah. a great moment. And she, I think Molly gets what's going on with Harry and Ginny. I think she, of kinda, course, she does. And she and she and she knows this. And Harry's one of her own, and she loves him to death yes. as well. And Ginny is so touched that Harry would leave the rest of the trio behind if she wanted to go back to Lupin Lodge and Morning yes. Company. And that's all she needs for that day. I mean, she left this room in you know a bout of humiliation and everything out fine. I just love that Harry kept staring at her, even though he probably knew that Molly was looking at him, looking at Jenny. Here's the thing. Do you think he looked at Molly and they kind of locked eyes for a minute and they both kind of got what was going on? I kind of got the sense when I read that, that Molly kind of got what was going on and maybe even Harry looked at Molly and kind of looked at Jenny and then Molly said, hey, I think Harry's looking at you. I think that maybe that was Harry being a little forward there. I do. I think there's no, I do. Brenda made a comment last week. I think that there's nothing going on that they don't tell you about. I think in this case, I disagree with a little bit. I think that Molly definitely knows everything that's happening, and Molly definitely... Well, okay. yeah, I, I I think that when Harry is looking at Ginny, and in a way, I think he's finally accepting, you know what, I do like her. Molly knows it. I know that Molly knows it. And I'm not going to be ashamed of my feelings for Ginny in front of Molly because she's my mom too. And she knows what I'm feeling. She, and it's okay if she, if she knows. So he doesn't try to hide it from her. I don't think. Well, the other thing too, is if you think about it, you know, Molly's a pretty intimidating woman. I mean, if Molly were a guy and you wanted to date his daughter, I think you'd be a little scared, you know, as the kid going over there. And um, I think I, when I was reading this, I, I actually, because I was thinking all this as I read it, I was thinking to, you know, Ginny laughing, hey, um, I, you might not want to piss off Ron because he punched out the last guy who pissed him off. <laughs> you know, if if, if Molly <laughs> ever pulled anything on Harry, I'm like, um, Molly, the last guy that pissed off Harry got incinerated. So just to point right. out. I, just, well, I think just in pointing that out, I don't think that Harry is afraid of Molly. I, don't think I so think he accepts he accepts Molly. And Molly loves Harry, of course. But he accepts her. And, and, and so he just lets her do what she needs to do. And he's like, okay. And then he goes on. And I love that about it. I love how he just accepts people and he just takes them for who they are. Which isn't really common for a lot of these fics. And a lot of these fics, you really do see Harry being the scare of the little child. And you really do see Molly's... And he really... He really wants Molly to respect him. He really looks up to Molly and sees Molly as a mother figure. And really, what what serious thought mattered to Ginny, what Molly thinks matters to Harry, especially after that scene in Gobble of the Fire. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, this is a very different Harry that we're dealing with. This is a Harry that is matured. This is a Harry who, while at times he's a small little child who, like Ginny, needs, you know, his mother figure needs, you know, Sirius or needs Remus or needs someone to hold him. I don't think he's the person that would be afraid of Molly anymore. 
I do want to talk about the ending real quick of this chapter. Oh, definitely. I, I got time. I'm just thinking, you know, just okay. based on how much footage we have, I don't want to have too long. I'm fine, tired-wise. I'm just thinking we're going to have a really long episode. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I, I'm I'm a little uh, sad that this is a more somber. I like the happier, funnier podcast, but there's no way to make this happier, funny, because it's so great. Well, you I, know? Think, I think we're going to have to have a very uh, vibrant uh, blooper reel here, Jen. I think that's true because it's such a, but these are such wonderful, somber chapters and, and they are written so well. It's hard to poke fun or, or you, do you know what I mean? Either A&T sent everyone <laughs> to the Lost Island Penny. or, or, or they write, you know, Fred and George into a chapter. But I, I definitely, yeah. I think these three chapters did such a good job at fleshing out the secondary characters of Penny, of Lavender, yeah. of... Seamus, just of these other characters, Neville, just these characters that you don't see too often, you know, S- Secretary Privy Rose K. Brown, um, you know, Mick, uh, you know, Charlie, who I consider a secondary well, character because you never really see him. You know, it just, it's just so, such a good job of making this such a realistic world. These are real people. I really sense that. Yeah. And I, I and do I, too. Magic is real. Magic is real. Well, and I just think that these chapters are so, uh, important in moving the Harry and Jenny story plotline along. And we're, we're so at the beginning. We're only a, if you realize this, we're a third of the way through and there's so much has happened. There's so much yet to come. So I'm really enjoying uh, the story. We're actually going to um, end our podcast here tonight. Jen and I have been talking uh, for over four hours, even though it won't seem like that to you because I do such an amazing job editing this thing down. Uh, has it really it, been that long? It, it has been four hours. Jen, I just My want to point this goodness. out for those of you listening. Uh, during one <laughs> podcast, just so you can you know, send your thanks to Jen at com. During one podcast, uh, Jen lost electricity, so she packed her dog <laughs> and I believe her husband in like a knapsack and took them to a computer where they could record. Uh, and during episode four, her husband was, you know, was sung by a scorpion and yes and, and in show, bed in bed and the show must go on and she's actually uh recording live tonight from a tornado shelter i believe is that correct jen how are we doing over there yes <laughs> <laughs> we have so many tornadoes around us we've we're, we've seriously been on call for the tornado signals for the alarms this evening so it's been quite an interesting i'm just so happy that i had power like I'm, I'm just waiting for it to go out and <sighs> supposedly we're supposed to have this weather for the next two days oh man so we shall see if we are still here in two more days so yay I just, I would, <laughs> you'll be there don't worry and i just want to thank and i just obviously <laughs> want to thank you you know uh for for agreeing to come on the podcast and i think you bring a lot to the show and i've really enjoyed our conversation tonight so i just want you know thanks for agreeing to be a part of this oh ryan oh god make him oh. cry again <laughs> Forget a thousand years of courage. She's gone. I know. We're going to get out of here, everybody. Uh, next week, we promise we are covering chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21. We're going to do a full episode on these chapters, or else we're never going to get done with this fic, which I have to tell you, <laughs> wouldn't be the worst problem we've ever had. I'm really I know. It doesn't episode. bother me. It doesn't. Let's do one chapter an episode and really get into it. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going to do that. But... Uh, <laughs> We would appreciate any feedback that you have. Uh, some of you have sent us uh, some feedback in. You've sent us some voicemails, and I'm actually sitting on them because you unfortunately included spoilers as to what is going to happen with Ginny, and I'm waiting until we as the audience discover that before I throw it into the episode. So hopefully uh, we will catch up with Lady Chi and some of our other uh, active foreign members in next week's episode. I would like to thank very much uh, Zenya 
for taking time out of her morning commute to listen to our podcast and Can chime. I- oh, absolutely. Go ahead. I just want to say say thank you. I know that I haven't been emailing her or, you know, talking to her. Ryan's the one that's been in contact with her. But I I want to say how much I get a kick out of and enjoy her voicemails. I love them. I, I like, listen to them over and over and over. I think they're so fabulous. And it's so neat to hear from her that she's a real person. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to say, you always get the sense that, you know, these fanfic authors, you know, are these abstract people. And it's it's weird to think that, you know, they have W-2s and they file tax returns and they have kids. <laughs> no, they don't. They write Harry Potter novels. You, you yeah, forget that's, that's weird. You forget they're real people after a while. And um, I just like to say, too, because uh, I know Zenny is listening to this, when Jen agreed to join the show, you know, I said, okay, you know, here's, a, here's, a, here's your own email address. And she said, thank you. And, you know, I said, well, you know, here's the times when we record. And she said, thank you. And I said, oh, you know, and you get to interview, you know, Xenia now. And Jen kind of stopped. And I think she started to cry. Like, that was like the, the highlight of her life. I just thought it was great. So, Xenia, you made one little girl very happy in Texas. She's hanging on to what's left. She's hanging on to what's left of her house right now. But she's very grateful she gets to talk to you in a few weeks. That is so true. I'm just, I swear I'm going to be starstruck. Oh, it's going to be great. Email her at jenatpotterfickweekly.com. Break the ice a little bit. So next week, <laughs> we have a full boat for everybody. Uh, any feedback you have, please email staff at potterfickweekly.com or you can email Rina, Kim, Jen, or Ryan at their names at potterfickweekly.com. You can visit our website and click on contact to us and there's information on there on how to leave us a voicemail through uh, a program we're using right now called Gizmo Project, or you can just email us a uh, voice clip to uh, the staff at potterfickweekly.com email address, and we will gladly put you on the show. Uh, yes. Visit our forums at potterfickforum.com. Uh, Jen has recently been promoted to deputy headmistress. Of Very the cool. I hope you're enjoying your new office. and. Uh, I just the- noticed it today, and I'm so excited. <laughs> She's been the deputy headmistress for a week. She had no earthly idea. <laughs> I'm really thrilled about that. There is a link on our forum for asking questions to Arabella and Xenia. They'll be on the show uh, in a few weeks once we complete uh, After the End, and they will answer any questions that you guys may have. What they're doing for us now, because they're such great people, is they are perusing the questions that you ask on our forum and they are actually answering them now and they're emailing us the responses in and we're getting them on the show right away so if you have any questions about these chapters uh, you know post it in our forums and perhaps Zenia will send you a personalized response maybe she's not watching Lost which is a good show or out with her BFF I heard it's not anymore but we'll talk about that another time so we hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we uh, hope to see you next week and uh, hear now some bloopers from tonight's episode have a good night everybody <laughs> good night <laughs> so then of course you have you know Harry grabs Hermione for dear life I'm sorry oh sorry wrong fic there um, Harry grabs Jamie <laughs> Harry <laughs> sorry Sorry, that was a little bit of Barb's trilogy there. I apologize. Draco is throwing the kitchen sink at him, and Ron holds back until almost the very end, and then Sirius reigns him in. And I love the scene, too, where the you know the patrons of the bar who were all drunk were suddenly all sober, and they had their Rons. They had their Rons. They had their wands raised. You know, the Hogwarts kids. Actually, I want to know their names. I want he to threw a sink at him? No, it's an expression. <laughs>
<laughs> like what? Yeah, have you ever heard the expression "the kitchen sink"? Throw everything but the kitchen sink. No. It's an expression that means you're throwing like everything you have at someone. You're going through everything. You, you even threw the kitchen sink at them. It's just an expression that means. You're... Oh. <laughs> That's so going in the bloopers of this episode. <laughs> no, no. The bloopers are going to end up being Jen is being an idiot. Jen, you're on the bloopers right now. Say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs>